Are you looking to expand your brand this year? Want to make your business stand out above the rest? Well, there's no better way to grow than with your own podcast. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a small business, or a massive company, you need a podcast in 2024. Podcast Plus is an easy and efficient way for you and your brand to join the podcast revolution. There's no better way to position your company as the go-to authority than with a podcast that showcases your industry knowledge, insights, and expertise. The studios at Podcast Plus are state-of-the-art with top-of-the-line production quality. And if you're just starting out, Podcast Plus offers professional script writing, editing magic, and can conceptualize your show, create your cover art, and get you ready to stream on all major platforms. We'll market your podcast as well, showcasing it on radio stations and digital streams across the country. Expand, enhance, and extend your company and brand and reach potential clients and customers 24-7. Find out more at podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. That's podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. Hello, good Saturday evening. I'm Jeremy Scott, and it's so good to be with you here tonight. We're going to talk politics. I mean, that's what everybody wants to talk about, right? <laughs> uh, no, just kidding. Well, I'm only half joking. We are going to talk a little bit about politics. Uh, we're going to go beyond the politics of UFOs tonight. So good to have Greg Cameron back. We've talked with him many times over the years about uh a disclosure about the presidents and the statements that they've made over the years uh, regarding the UFO topic and about his fight for information, for disclosure uh, through Freedom of Information Act requests and documents. And Grant is really now looking at the bigger picture of it all. And you know consciousness is one of is one of my favorite things to talk about and, and that's gonna play into what we're we're gonna be discussing tonight, but also about the ways in which people use um to have some of these experiences that run the gamut, kind of like those experiences that we talk about in our theme song with Johnny Cobb and Jerry McCoy. So without further to uh, further uh, ado, I want to welcome Grant Cameron here because he's joining us three hours later up in the Great White North, and he is a wealth and encyclopedia of information. He's the recipient of the Leeds Conference International Researcher of the Year and the UFO Congress Researcher of the Year. He became involved in ufology as the Vietnam War ended in May of 1975, uh, had personal sightings of a UFO-type object that was locally known up in Carmen as Charlie Red Star in Canada. And after experiencing a noetic mental download event on February 26, 2012, Grant turned his uh, research interests away from nuts and bolts research to the role of consciousness 
in the UFO phenomena. Uh, this new research is explained as expanded out to the uh, possible involvement of non-human intelligence in modern music and in the phenomena of inspirations and downloads in science discoveries, inventions, Nobel Prizes, music, art, books, near-death experiences, meditation, and with individuals known as savants and prodigies. He has lectured widely in Canada, the United States, and Europe. He was one of the 40 witnesses that testified in front of the six former senators and congressmen in Washington for the citizens hearing on UFO disclosure, and he has appeared on many television documentaries as well on the subject. Just this year, Grant has published three books, each of them equally as important and likely all connected. And the time is now to talk with Grant Cameron. I'm so glad that we're going to be doing this right now. Contact modalities, the keys to the universe, UFOs and encounters with the non-ordinary at Mount Shasta, and the third being the portals and UFOs of Mount Shasta. All the way from the Great White North, hello, Grant Cameron. Good evening. Jeremy, thank you for having me on. It's so so good to have you uh, back. It's been about two and a half years since our last discussion, wow. and a lot has happened in the UFO subject since then. I want to get us caught up on maybe not everything is happening because we don't have that much time, and I and I want to get on on how you've connected this all together, and we'll have plenty of time to do that. But just some okay. initial thoughts from you, uh, if you wouldn't mind, on the state of ufology here in late 2020. Um. Okay. Uh, depends which part of the field you're in. Um, the disclosure people, I think, are pretty happy. We've moved along with um, the government actually making sort of an admission that they had a program, which we've been saying for 40 years, uh, would be totally insane for them not to be uh, taking a look at it. Uh, there's been some sort of stalling, of course. I, I, I talk about this as a gradual disclosure that they put it out, they pull it back, they put it out. Um, there's people in the government that are sort of dropping stuff out, and, and at the same time, they're playing this cover-up game. So I think a lot of people are pretty happy. People get sort of impatient uh, with um, the way it's coming out. Uh, but the way I look at that is I think most people mistakenly look at this as entertainment. It's like... Uh, you know, there's no NFL football on or there's no, uh, you know, we got COVID or there's, we, there's nothing to see on TV. So let's get some entertainment and let's find out what the government's doing about UFOs. And I think a lot of it is that is that people really aren't that interested in what's the bottom line to it. They're just more interested in a good story, which kind of frustrates me. And uh, so when it comes to UFO disclosure, that part of the thing, I always say to people like, I mean, they disclosed. I mean, they said, yeah, we got a program and uh, we're uh, there's unidentified. And and then people will say, well, that's not good enough. We want, Well, what do you want? Well, people basically want them, the government to describe what they think is going on, like whether they think there's reptilians eating us or uh, it's interdimensional or whatever person a person's view is. They, they just want more. It's like, okay, now tell us something else. And my conclusion to that is there are people that, um, like there are people who have got the gun camera footage. There are people who were at Rendlesham Forest uh, doing secret investigations. There was people up at a, an event here at, at Falcon Lake in 1967 doing secret investigations. So there is a group somewhere, but I would warn people that I think that um, the powers that be know a lot less than people think they know. Uh, this is a very complex uh, problem from, from the way I look at it. I'd say it's a thousand times more complex than people think it is. 
It's going to be a lot less physical than people think it is. It's going to be a lot more spiritual than people think it is. It's not going to have a hint of capitalism to it. Uh, and But by far, it's, it's way more complex than people think. And if you go back to, I used to think Jack Vallée was crazy, but if you look at what Jack Vallée was saying, I think he's sort of the closest. He was in that field where I thought he was a crazy guy. Uh, that this, you know, he said, I'd be very surprised if this turns out to be simply ETs flying around. I've moved more to that field myself based upon my own experiences and based upon um, what I've done. So the way I've looked at it, um, I, to me, I've made a lot of great gains, I think, in terms of what I've learned. But I've looked at it um, going almost back. When you look back on your life and you look back on the research, it's a lot easier to look back, and it all makes sense when you look back. And I remember 1975. You mentioned I just a couple weeks before the end of the, a couple weeks after the end of the Vietnam War ended, I was in Carmen, Manitoba. The first night, um, I I was there only because people were seeing stuff. I had no interest in UFOs, no interest in extraterrestrials, never thought about it. Just said to my friend, instead of driving around the city, let's go out and see what everybody's looking at. Believed, you know, I buy the lottery ticket knowing that I'd probably go out there and, uh, you know, you buy the lottery ticket, you got a chance you're going to win, but you're not going to win. You're not going to see anything. And we were just about to go home after an hour, and we turned around to go back into town one more time. This thing flew by us, and my life just flipped. It was almost like a switch got turned. My friends went on with their life, and I just sort of flipped off the end of the earth. But the next night was the more important night. That was the second night um, I dragged all my friends out there. And they all took off home. They said, nah, we're going, we're, we're, we're not going to go. I said, no, you got to watch this. You got to see this. this is unbelievable. And uh, they all took off for home. And I remember the second night it came at me, it came directly at us. It was down very low, came directly towards us to within about, uh, I don't know what it would have been, maybe half a mile away. And uh, it was the same object I'd seen the first night. It started off as a different object, but then it changed as it came towards us. It changed. It, the objects will change in shape and color and size. So it changed. And I remember it made this pause and it, it made this left-hand turn and headed off into the northeast. And I still remember at that moment, I thought extraterrestrial. And I thought, wow, that could be from another planet. As I thought, this is like I've been so lucky to see this thing. And then I'm looking at it and I and now 45 years later, I look back on that as one of the most significant things that ever happened because I remember I was thinking to myself, what are they doing? They're flying along, they're not doing anything. It was like, and and that always bothered me. So when I couldn't get a book published in about what I had researched in the 1970s, I basically said, I, no, I'm not interested in UFO sightings anymore. I told all these stories, nobody cares. Uh, they're just interesting stories you can tell people. I said, I want to know what that thing was. That, that second night when I said, you know, what what's going on? Like, why? what are they doing? And so I, I was on this pursuit to figure out um, what's actually going on. So I'm really not interested in seeing UFOs. I'm not interested in seeing aliens. I'm not interested in uh, dancing bears. I'm not interested in any sort of entertainment type thing. I just want to know what's going on. I, I want to get to the bottom of it. So as you mentioned, uh, I moved away from the disclosure thing, which I think a lot of people are still into uh, because people um, – I, th I think it's it's the entertainment thing. It's they, they want answers. But I think we have to go beyond that and, and acknowledge that, say, if, if you they decide they say, or even they say it's extraterrestrial or whatever, they tell you tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, so what are you going to do then? Okay, so then you, you go to the next step. Well, let's get past the fact that the UFOs exist. Yeah, they're here. And I have an advantage in that the thing flew right by me twice. I was five times close within two years. So I have the advantage that I've never really gone down the road of let's prove UFOs exist. 
And I think a lot of ufology is still into trying to prove to your friends and neighbors that the skeptics, and I say, forget the skeptics, it's for real. Now let's move on and find out who is, who's flying these things, why are they here, and is there a possible message? So I moved on, and we can get into this whole thing of consciousness. I had, the, looking back, I have this experience in 2012 where I'm chasing the president, because basically what I wanted to know is, like, what's going on? So who knows? And so I started to go to the highest level official, the highest level person that I could find that would have the answer, because I knew I didn't have the answer. But I said, there got to be somebody around that knows what's going on here. And that's why I chased the Canadian government. And then I, the Canadian government had made this famous top secret memo in 1950 that said flying saucers exist. It's the most highly classified subject in the United States. There's a small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush who are trying to figure out the modus operandi. And the subject is of tremendous significance to the Americans. And then this line that didn't come to me till 2012, the very next line said, we we're also told by American officials that other things might be associated with the flying saucers, such as mental phenomena, which is extremely important because in 1950, nobody was talking to aliens. The first aliens weren't till Adamski after the detonation of the hydrogen bomb when the aliens started to appear in Adamski and Williamson and these guys started talking to aliens. So uh, when it, when that happened, then I, I wanted to know who gave this material, who in the United States had given this material to the Canadians. That led me to Dr. Eric Walker, the former president of Penn State University, 14 honorary doctorate degrees, chairman of the board of the Institute for Defense Analysis, the top military think tank in the United States, uh, You know, worked for Eisenhower in engineering papers, co-developer of the homing torpedo, super powerful guy that basically told us, yeah, this is for real, leave it alone, there's nothing you can do about it unless you get the mind of Einstein, played games with us, sent us little code messages and stuff like that. And that led me to the president. I thought, well, the president's got to know, the president's the most powerful guy in the world. And I raced around from library to library and found out there was really no documents in the presidential libraries and sort of started to wonder whether the president was really sort of in the loop. So uh, that was where I ended in 2012. And I had this uh, what I call a noetic flow experience. And for people who have not had a noetic experience, um, it's it's unfortunate because it's very hard to explain unless you've had it. It's almost like the Pope talking about sex and marriage. I mean, if you unless you've been there, you have no authority to talk about it. And it's an event that happens that you get this sense that this is reality. And it'll happen. It happens in near death experiences. It happens. A lot of experiencers on board ship will talk about this. It happens in psychedelics. It happens in all sorts of states where you get a flow state. I was in a flow state where I was daydreaming in a Colin Andrews lecture, and this came into my head with absolute certainty. Like, this is reality. This is how it works. This whole consciousness thing. So that's where I make the move, and I get cut off by a lot of the UFO community. They say Cameron's lost his mind, and a lot of those people still don't talk to me. They're still into, uh, let's uh, shoot these uh, aliens down, uh, you know, put them in uh, Indian reservations and or whatever, grab the engine, and let's make some money from this thing. And I think... That's kind of a, a a wrong road to go down because I think this is so far advanced from from what we've got, and uh, it may not be as extraterrestrial as people think it is. And you said who's flying it, and you told me a, a very interesting thing on more than one occasion, Grant, that it does appear that sometimes these people are flying it with their mind, as in the experiencer is flying the craft yeah. with their mind. Yeah, and that that's important. That's that's one of the key things that I point out to people. If you think consciousness isn't involved, give your head a shake because I've got 50 people. I remember the first – this is what happened. I, I, I got the Researcher of the Year Award, 
And once I made my first consciousness lecture, that was in Phoenix, Arizona, the year after I had the download experience. Mm -hmm. I was basically sort of uh, ostracized by a lot of people who wanted to stay with the nuts and bolts and said, well, these experiencers, they're just anecdotal stories. It really doesn't prove anything. We're we're conservative. We want nuts and bolts. We want uh, scientific evidence and this kind of stuff. And um, I, when I was there, I gave this lecture, I remember the head of MUFON in, in uh, the big group in Phoenix said to me, um, are you still going to talk to Pam Dupuy? And I said, yeah, I guess so. And I thought, well, I must have agreed to talk to this woman, whoever she is. Oh, that's good. She's coming to the house on Monday. You can talk to her. And that was when it started for me, when this woman walked in and and I was completely green, as most people now are still green. They do not realize this very significant piece of the puzzle. And that was that I, I thought I knew everything. I'd been in UFOs for whatever it was, you know, 37 years. I thought I knew everything. She's telling me stories. I was abducted. I, you know, I psychic I remote view for the government and this and that. And it's like, whatever, whatever. She's telling me all these stories. And she's in her 70s. And then she says to me at one point, that's when she says to me, oh, and I was uh, I was uh, flying the ship last night. And I went, what? And and she said, yeah. I said, you are flying the flying saucer. And she said, yeah. And I, I was thinking to myself, you are nuts, lady. I mean, <laughs> you are lost. It. And, and then she said, yeah. And I said, they let you fly the flying saucer. And I always make this joke about because a lot of them are women that will fly the flying saucer. And and I it was the, the joke was, you know, in Saudi Arabia until about a year ago, women couldn't drive a car unless they had a, a male in the car and stuff like that. And but if, if you if you're a Saudi Arabian woman and they abduct you, they'll let you fly the craft. No, no male in the car, no license, no insurance, nothing. I mean, there's and I, I couldn't believe that that this woman is flying the craft. And I said, they let you fly the flying saucer. And I didn't say a woman. I was, you know, and she said, yeah, I've flown three different models. And I and then what do you got left to say? I go, so how do you fly a flying saucer? And she said, oh, you do it with your mind. And as soon as she said that, it was like the bell came on. I was like, oh, that's why they wanted me to talk to this woman. And I now have 50 people who have described exactly the same thing. And it's very, very common when you start looking through the literature. In fact, the free survey, the, the Edgar Mitchell free survey, showed that 13% of all the people who had the 3,000 experiences who would answer the question, 13% said they'd flown the craft. And if you go and talk to these people, and I've got an F-16 Air, uh, uh, retired Air Force colonel from Los Angeles who told me the story. I have a guy who was a 747 airline pilot of San Francisco. I've got like literally everybody you can possibly think of. And they all tell – it's like they're reading off a cue card. You walk into the ship and uh, – or, for example, I asked Chris Bletso, the famous experiencer, when he, I heard he'd phone the craft. He said, hang on, Chris. Don't tell me. I want to phone you on Skype. I want to record this. I said, okay, so how does it work? And he says, well, I go and there's this craft, it's an egg-shaped thing, the door is open, and I go and it's 10 times the size inside as it is outside. Now look outside, and it's small, I go inside, it's 10 times the size inside. And this is something that people with near-death experiences will tell, or people who've had uh, um, been in the spirit world will tell the same story, that the buildings that they're in are 10 times the size inside as outside. So you start seeing these parallels between other modalities that seem to indicate, like, what's really going on? Is the person having a near-death experience or having an abduction experience? But Chris would say, and all they all say the same thing, you go in the craft, and you stand there, and you don't know what to do. And, and there's beings behind you. That they'll describe it. They'll say, there's people behind me, but I don't know if they're aliens or if I don't know if they're humans. And I'm standing there, and then, like the some, the uh, retired Air Force colonel told me, he said, I'm standing there, and, they, and, I, and I said, I don't know what to do. And they said, you know what to do, just do it. And it's the same kind of weird story. And then he, he sees this panel, and he puts his hand on the, this panel, and he's, he said it's like suction cups on an F-16, whatever that means. And he said he's suddenly flying the craft. And, and they all tell the same story. You become one with the craft. 
the craft is alive and whatever you think is what the craft does. And you can go wherever you want. Like the one guy said, they asked him, where do you want to do? He said, I'd like to see the Milky Way from a, from a distance. And he said, this will take a one second, put, sit in the chair, put your fingers in these little panel things. And it's like the chair was built for him. And he sits in the, in the chair and puts his hand in these, in these little, uh, little holes and he said there's this very high G-force for one second. He said the, the front opens up, the, the sort of the window thing opens up, and he sees the, the Milky Way from a distance in one second. So everybody's telling this same story. And so the key is that consciousness, whatever you want to say, is definitely involved. Because all these people that I had, I kept it very secret for a number of years that I was talking to these people. And everybody would say the same thing. And they'd say, oh, I've flown the craft. And I'd say, hang on. Okay, let me ask you a question. How do you fly the craft? And nobody has ever said, oh, there's this little steering wheel, there's this little stick or whatever. Even Cat Stevens, the, the famous musician from the 1970s, yeah. he talks about being abducted in London, off a roof in London, mm-hmm. before he becomes a Muslim and stops singing and stuff like that. But he's a very famous singer. And he writes two songs about his abduction experience. He said, I know it was real. I know I was taken. And one was called Longer Boats and one was called Freezing Steel. 1972, I was on the ship. The ship of freezing steel, the ship without the guiding wheel. And there is no steering wheel. There's no, and people will all describe the same thing. Nobody ever has said there's a, a, a steering wheel or anything like that. Everybody will always tell the story about become, becoming one with the craft. And so that was the key thing, a key piece of evidence, I think, that sort of shows that consciousness is definitely involved. You have, you know, the telepathy thing and all this kind of stuff. But that is something that that you really can't make up because it's, it's, it's not like, um, you know, somebody's going to say, you're going to make up a story that you were abducted and make this stupid story that you were flying the craft through your mind. That makes no sense. And yet everybody tells the same story. Yeah, and when they start telling all the same story, uh, as an investigator or researcher like yourself, Grant, you start to pay attention. That's what you've done uh, is listen to all these people. And through that, it's become clear to you what's really happening. Yeah, or that, or that. Uh, mainly, I've, I've, I've sort of learned that there's this connection between all these different things. And I, I mentioned this thing about well, one guy. I don't know if you ever interviewed him. His name is Ron Johnson. I've interviewed him a number of times, and he's a, a um, Latter Day Saint guy. Out of um, had a lot of experiences since the 1960s. I've encouraged him to do a book. He's got very advanced heart failure problems. Uh, but he's documented everything from the 1960s. And he tells the same sort of story. And you see these weird crossovers where, for example, he, he's the one that was in with the, he, the being. Is, the being is named Elby that, that deals with him. And Elby takes him three times into the spirit world. And the, the one time he's in sort of like, it's like a uh, thing that uh, even Alexander talks about, sort of like a dark, there's nothing really happening in there. But the one time he's actually in the spirit world with his mother, his dead mother, and you can see his mother, and she's taking him around and taking him for a, a guide tour through the spirit world. And there's this building, it looks like a temple in Nephi, um, Utah. And his wife says, well, Ron, when you die, you're going to come here and you're going to get a room in this building. And that's when he says, I, I, she took me into the building. She said, he said it was 10 times the size inside the building as it was outside. Now, the thing is, I've never talked to him about this other aspect. I'm going, that's what Chris Busso said. He said the same thing. Or Terry Lovelace. Have you ever talked to Terry Lovelace? Yeah, the incident he's- of Devil's Den. Absolutely. I've talked to Terry, a good friend of, of mine in the program. Hope he's listening tonight. I think maybe Ray Hernandez with the free uh, organization and, and now his new effort uh, is, is maybe listening as well. I know we have uh, many friends of yours who maybe are listening tonight, Grant. So we'll give you an yeah. opportunity to say hello to them as the evening goes on. As we go beyond the politics of UFOs tonight on Into the Parabnormal, I'm Jeremy Scott.
Want to chat with like-minded thinkers? Join Into the Parabnormal Facebook group. It'll blow your mind. Pair Abnormal News, I'm Brad Bernards. After months of the silent treatment, NASA has finally reconnected with one of its longest-running missions. The Voyager 2 spacecraft has been roaming the cosmos for more than 40 years, all the while staying in touch with a diligent team of engineers in ground control. But in March of this year, NASA hung up the line. Inverse.com says the space agency left the spacecraft to spend a lonely few months in space in order to upgrade their communication system. Flying some 11.5 billion miles away from Earth, Voyager 2 was left to its own devices in mid-March. But on October 29th, NASA briefly reconnected, and thankfully, Voyager 2 gleefully answered the call. Voyager 2 is a vital scientific mission and one of the furthest man-made objects from Earth. To communicate with the spacecraft, NASA relies on a system called the Deep Space Network Antennas. In April 2020, astronomers detected an unusually bright and powerful radio signal never before recorded in our home galaxy. The source is a magnetar, a type of compact object with the strongest magnetic fields in the cosmos. According to TheVerge.com, the radio waves, known as fast radio bursts, or FRBs, seem to have sprouted from an incredibly powerful zombie star lurking in our galaxy, according to three papers published in the journal Nature. Called a neutron star, the object is a super-dense leftover that forms when a massive star, bigger than our own sun, collapses in on itself. It hosts an incredibly powerful magnetic field that stores mind-boggling amounts of energy capable of distorting the shapes of atoms. Read more of the news at ParaAbnormalRadio.com. I'm Brad Bernards, ParaAbnormal News. People are saying they're seeing UFOs. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. President, believe in the existence of UFOs. Officer President, believe in the existence of UFOs. I want to open the files as much as we can. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. This is a strict control over us. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. Sporting a tinfoil hat and looking dang good in it. Into the Paranormal with Jeremy Scott. Beyond the politics of UFOs, the name of our program tonight. And I'm Jeremy Scott with my guest Grant Cameron. His website is beyondpresidentialufo.com. Author of so many great books. I've got alien bedtime stories here. I just finished it a couple months ago. And this is the uh, the revised edition. And he was talking about Cat Stevens, Chris Blood. So those are some of the names that uh, have a common theme or a thread throughout that book. I do highly Recommended. I actually need more Grant Cameron books on my shelf, so maybe once um, we get through this pandemic, <laughs> I'll, I'll be getting more books. 
Anyway, uh, Grant is my guest. Uh, so good to have him here. He was talking about uh, the connection between experiencers, particularly about perception being swayed and, and some similarities among experiencers, uh, Chris Bledsoe, and you mentioned Terry Loveless as well. Yeah, there's bizarre connections. You mentioned uh, Ray Hernandez. I should probably give you the background on that. So Ray Hernandez um, had that consciousness connection as well. So I gave, I had my consciousness download to February 26, 2012. And a week later, uh, Ray Hernandez has his event with the dog. If you know the story of the dog, where the dog gets healed. Where the dog was healed, yes. Yeah. And his wife is uh, Roman Catholic, very religious, uh, believes that it's, uh, you know, God rather than uh, aliens. But having these contact experiences, this is about the same time I have my download experience within a week. And Chris Bledsoe has his experience with the the lady in light. Uh, he has his abduction experience in 2007, but in 2012, about the same time, he has this experience where he meets this uh, this lady who tells him you have a you have a mission and it is yours to you have a burden and it is yours to carry, and the burden is the is the message that he's to deliver to the world. So anyway, uh, Ray Hernandez um, basically uh, is hearing his wife having these experiences. And he's waiting for a guy, he's fixing some guy's tickets for the court or whatever. And he's waiting for this guy to come. And he says, well, whatever, you know, I'll, if, you know, if, if this thing is out there, my wife's seeing this thing, uh, I want to see the, 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 the ship with the stained glass windows that my wife sees and all this kind of stuff. And nothing happens. He goes, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. And he's waiting, waiting, waiting. Uh, he said, and he looks over and above the neighbor's house, he looks like Wembley Stadium above the house. And he goes, whoa. And he re- realizes his daughter said, daddy, if you ever see anything, call me so he's yelling get out here get out here and his daughter comes out and they're standing there looking at this thing with the lights all over it and then the guy he's going to do the 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 tickets comes up and then he says what do you think of that and the guy's oh and they're, they're having this discussion and then the guy just drives off but ray has this experience where he suddenly realizes there's a consciousness connection that he actually made some sort of consciousness connection he was able to to use his mind and and bring this thing in so he went to um the internet and he started looking consciousness and ufos and of course my name popped up so he contacted me and he said i've got this experience i want need to know what happened and all this kind of stuff and i said well i'm going to be in florida giving a lecture on consciousness why don't you come down there and uh you can listen to my lecture on consciousness and we'll have a discussion bring your wife along so he talks his wife's not interested so he talks his wife into a second honeymoon we're going to go to sebring florida he comes down there and she's really not interested in talking about it whatever but he tells me the story, and then a couple days later, uh, after the lecture, it's on the Saturday, Sunday, whatever, it's about the Tuesday, he's driving, and he'll tell the story, he's driving down the, the Miami freeway, he's in traffic, completely blocked, stopped, and he's listening to NPR, uh, or an interview, and he said, all of a sudden, boom, he's out of his car, and he's in his out-of-body experience, and he's up, and uh, they're showing him a wheel. And this wheel is is spinning and it has these visual things on it uh, that show uh, remote viewing, near-death experiences, uh, psychic phenomena, uh, UFOs, all this kind of stuff. And the wheel is spinning and in the middle of the wheel is consciousness. And he, so he has this thing and he calls it the contact modality. He said this is what they were showing him. And basically what he was being shown is we got to quit parsing this thing because people will parse it. They'll say, for example, people will say to me, I had this, uh, I don't think I've ever been abducted, but I have uh, aliens come to me in in my dreams. And then I always say, anything else happened to you weird in your life? And they go, 
Oh, yeah. And they start talking about ghosts and paranormal and ports and manifestations and stuff. And people want to parse it. They don't realize it's probably all going to be the same thing. It's all connected. And so Ray gets this message that you got to quit parsing this stuff. It's all basically the same thing. So that's where the idea of contact modalities came up. And that's what sort of got me on the, the right track where Ray wanted me to do an article for his book. And I said I was sort of delaying. And then I said to myself, well, I'll just put the contact modalities down because I already knew there was connections like near-death experiences for the, the free survey shows that people who are, are abductees, experiencers, whatever you want to call them, who have done the free survey, 39% of them, according to the free survey, said they've had a near-death experience. Uh, Kathy Martin, her study shows 55% of people have had a near-death experience, experiencers. And so the question is, we think it's random. We think, oh, the guy was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He grabbed, got grabbed by these aliens and they probed him and 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 I knew he had a near-death experience. And that was a random event. And you start starting to think like maybe these aren't random events. Maybe you agreed to be an experiencer and you agreed to have a near-death experience to learn something. And so I already knew there was these connections that these there was these connections between these things. So I put down all the contact modalities and it came to like 70 different contact modalities. And I started to realize that, yes, this is true, that basically the way I look at it, it's the ability to get out of the left rational analytical brain and pop into the noetic flow state where all the information is. So you'll get people, uh, experiences, we'll always talk about this if you read the free survey, they're in this matrix type reality. And time is 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 gone. The, the time doesn't exist. Time time and space. It's all mixed up. You'll see the same thing in near death experiences. You'll see same same thing in out of body experiences. In lucid dreaming, and you you start going through all the modalities, and you start seeing. Oh my! This is this stuff is all going to be related, and that's where I've moved on the UFO field. So I'm 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 not saying that there's not ETs, um, but I think that when they're coming across. Uh, it's more probable that they're coming, as I, I did the book on Shasta and portals, I think it's more probable that they're coming across in some sort of portal technology. And I would say, it's a long stretch, but I would say that if the government has any sort of technology, they have more understanding of portal technology, because that's the only thing that's going on. They're popping in and popping out. If you've ever interviewed um, uh, Jim Penniston, He'll tell you the story that he has the encounter with Kit Green, who was the control officer for the remote viewing program, ran the weird desk at the CIA for all the UFO weird stuff and stuff like that. And Kit Green is running this experiment with uh, Gary Nolan, where they're doing the DNA and the uh, the MRI scans of brains of experiences to see why our experience is different. And they got John Burroughs DNA and did the brain scan and stuff and got him his disability. And they went to Jim Penniston in Illinois and wanted his DNA. And uh, Jim said, well, you know, I'm not going to roll over like Pennist- like uh, Burroughs did. I, I want to know what the heck you guys are doing. And he said, well, you know, we're doing pr- propulsion. And he said, ah, come on, you're not doing propulsion. Come on. I, I, I'm going to find out what the heck. Why do you need my DNA? What the, are you guys actually doing? He said, well, this is, what, this is uh, Kit Green. This is like, the you know, the, one of the top guys in the in the field. And uh, he said, well, maybe I used the wrong word. Maybe propulsion isn't the right word. We're trying to fa- find out how does the phenomena pop in and pop out just as quickly. 
Now, that's talking about portal technology. And for people who have known, I've followed Ron Pandolfi for a number of years. And Ron Pandolfi is the present guy who's supposedly rumored to be running the weird desk. The guy that may have briefed Donald Trump on UFOs uh, is the guy that is the holds the keys for uh, all the classified material, whatever. And I've never talked to him personally, but I've interacted with people around him. He knows who I am. He watches my Facebook and stuff like that. And at one point, Ron, uh, they're, they're putting out this portal story. And this is where I'm saying when I every time I try to track down something, when people are talking about electrogravitics or anti-gravity or stuff like that, I try I track it all back and it all ends up in a dead end. And the one example would be Hell Put Off. Hell Put Off. And he came to me because he wanted to see what the Canadian stuff was in the 1950s, like propulsion stuff. And Hell Put Off talks about this, that he went through every person who said, oh, we got this anti-gravity machine. We got this, uh, you know, uh, energy machine, whatever. And he said, I've got a graveyard of over 50 of these things and none of them work. And basically, this is the the top UFO guy in sort of the, the field. And you're going like it indicates that there's nothing there, that that there's all these stories that we've got all this technology and stuff. And Hell Putoff is saying, no, I looked at the stuff and there's there's nothing there. And yet when you look at the portal stuff, Ron Pendolfi kept putting this thing up about the portals. And he's kind of a guy who does rhymes and riddles and he's uh, off skates all the time. And you don't know whether to believe anything this guy's saying. And he's, it's like he's playing games. So I talked to one of the people around him and I said, you know, I'm, I'm getting kind of tired of this portal story. I, I don't know if this is really real. You know, I think I'm wasting my time. Do you, do you think I should really stick around or should I just drop this thing and, and just move on to something else? And he said, and it goes a long pause. And he goes, no, you should probably stick around. I go, oh, OK, so I stick around. And I got this one video that he put um, that he was on a cruise that him and his wife um, travel quite a bit around the world. And they, they have this one cruise. They're going through the Panama Canal. And there's a bunch of films that were taken, a bunch of interviews where they're talking and stuff like that. And in the one interview, uh, he's sitting there and uh, his wife says to him, OK, footman, what do you say? And and her, she's the, they play these little games. She's the princess. He's the footman. He, he takes care of her. He's the footman. And she's OK, footman, what do you say? And Ron says on camera, he says, you know, people have always wondered what it's like to go into the next world. You know, the next time John and he looks over at this guy's name is John Sillison. And he's always rumored to be the guy that runs this portal thing. He's very closely involved. He said, next time John goes to the desert, a number of us here will go into the next world and come back again. So I grabbed this and I, I posted it and he was furious. He said that Cameron's a thief. And but you posted it. And I mean, I, and I saw this is the only time he's been caught on camera. But it was pretty clear that he was talking about portals. So every time I've sort of tracked down the portal story, there seems to be something to it. And I'll give you one other example. Uh, if you've read American Cosmic from Diane Pasolka, the main person she talks to in about there is Tyler D. Now, I know who Tyler D is. I've had a couple of conversations, had a personal conversation with him at a cottage in Pennsylvania in 2013 before he went secret, before all this became top secret, what he was doing and stuff like that. It was actually my friend that took him to the, the gifting field where he's got all this metal material that, that he's analyzing and stuff like that. And um, so he's talking to me. And um, he, he's giving me contacts with experiences because he does the same thing to me. I say, if you want to know the UFO answer, 
don't look at lights in the sky because that's just going to tell you that, yeah, there are UFOs there. There's something flying around. Yeah, something's going on. If you want to know what's going on, you've got to talk to the people who are interacting with the intelligence that are flying these things around. And a lot of people are there and you may want to give them lie detectors or whatever, but at least talk to these people because there's thousands of these people and they'll tell you what they've been told and, and what's happened and stuff like that. So Tyler Tyler D. had given me a name of a, a, a girl. He said, I think this girl comes from around where you live and she now lives in Florida and her name is Connie and he said she lives in Steinbach, Manitoba. And I go, wow, that's like 30 miles from where I live. So he says, you want to talk to her? And he gets me on her, his cell phone. He phones her up and I talk to her and I'm very good friends with her now. She talks about her experience as a young girl and and Tyler watches her very closely. She records all her, her premonitions and all the stuff she's been told. And he watches her very closely. And that's the idea. You've got to follow the contactees. You've got to find out. If you want to know how this thing works, you've got to talk to these people. So um, he's talking to me and then he pulls out his cell phone. And this is kind of this weird thing. It did took me many years to figure this out. He, should, he pulls his cell phone out. And he shows me this photograph, a uh, painting. And he said, what do you think of this? And it, look at these two guys. It looks like they're in pajamas and they're flying through space on this painting. And there's no signature on the painting or whatever. And I go, oh, I don't know, like whatever, you know. And then he shows me this other one of these balls all going into the middle of this painting. Big balls going into these small balls into the middle. And, and he says, what do you think of that? Oh, I don't know. Like, I, what are you showing me this stupid stuff for? And then he shows me this eclipse, three paintings of this eclipse as the eclipse takes place. Then these these panels of, of uh, moving things on the side of a building. And I'm going like, I don't know. And then he shows me this picture of a 56 four a 56 chevy on top of a parkade and he says here's look in the back seat and you can see on his on his photograph the back seat there's a postcard on the back seat of this car and he says you know what's on the postcard and i said what he said well he's this, this guy with his girlfriend and he's talking about how we'd like to travel through time and space to be with her and i go that's what it says and then he and he said yeah that's what it says and then he said to me he says uh what do you think? And I said, I don't, I have no idea what you're talking about here. And he says, you know where this is? And I go, no. And he said, it's the Hughes aircraft building. And I said, okay, whatever. You know, I still don't know what he's talking about. And then he said, that's, that's in LA and it, it's now an office building. That's where the jump room was. And I went, that was, that's where the jump room was. The whole idea that, you know, Barack Obama and all these guys were going up the, the elevator to the fifth floor and they were going to Mars in the jump room. And I'm going, what, what, what? And I'm looking at the photographs again. And then he says, the one with the, the one with the, the two guys, he said, he said, that's right outside the elevator. And I go, really? And, and I, so the first time I went to LA, I got on the, uh, got on and went to the, this building, it's 99 Sepulveda Avenue in, in LA. And here's these paintings. And he said, watch out for the, the security guard. Now it wasn't until years later, I'm thinking, why did he show me those photographs? Why did he do that? Like it, he didn't say this is real. He didn't say it wasn't real. He just said, what do you think of these photographs? And he was sort of hinting at me and I'm thinking he went there. Why would Tyler D, this very high level guy that is supposedly the top guy in NASA for UFOs that sits in this room, who's got 40 patents, who said uh, when he, he got this one invention, if you read the, the American Cosmic, there's this one invention that he gets and he sells this company for huge money. I know what I won't say what it is, but huge money sells this company based upon an invention that he got. And in the book, it talks about him going to being called to the Pentagon and this general screaming out, who came up with this idea? And they all point at Tyler D. And it's this guy. And and this was an invention that he got that he wanted to put on the space shuttle and he couldn't get on the space shuttle. And he got it from the beings. And he said, Grant, I'll tell you what. Because I'm into, the, I was in by then. I was into the download thing. This is 2013. I have this meeting with him, so I'm into the download thing and into consciousness. And he says, so he's telling me this story. He says, you know, the last thing I remember the night before 
I, I, I got the idea when I woke up in the morning. He said, the last thing I remember the night before was a hooded figure standing at the end of the bed. And I said, really? Could you see its face? And he goes, no, I couldn't see its face. I said, you should go. You should be, you should be regressed because he works in, in operating rooms for children with uh, medical stuff in L.A. and in, in Miami. I said, you should go to Yvonne Smith in L.A. You're in L.A. You should get regressed. You should find out what that being was telling you because it's, it's always seen to be the wisdom being. But he, he'll talk in the book that he can sit down. He, he sleeps for eight hours. He gets up. Then he goes to bed for an hour again. Then he gets up and he gets a big glass of water. And then he goes and sits out in the sun and he starts to drink this big glass of water. And the intelligence starts to talk to him. So this is this idea of contact modalities that you get a guy like Tyler D, this, this guy from NASA, who's using this technology. And you can do it. You can tap into this field. And people are learning how to do it. And that's what they're doing when you get Kit Green and Gary Nolan is you go to guys like like Burroughs and Penniston and uh, Chris Bledsoe and uh, all these other people, Whitley Strieber. And what you want to find out is why are these people having this high level of contact? What is different? Do they have something different in their brain? Uh, what are they telling you? And and that's basically where I think we've got to go. You've got to talk to the experiencers and they will tell you everything and you start to learn what's actually going on. And uh, a good point was brought up through a private message. We were talking about how the craft are powered, and in some cases, these experiencers are flying it, flying it with their mind. The question is, uh, could people be engaged in remote viewing be unaware that they're actually piloting these UFOs? Well, that comes down to what's actually going on. So the, the, this, this, then you get into this weird thing, like Einstein said, time is an illusion, and you start to get people who are experiences will talk about the fact that um, you know time and space seem to break down, and you get uh, uh, Wheeler, the, the guy that came up with the wormhole theory, and and uh, uh, um, uh, dark dark matter, not dark matter, but. Um, um, well, wormhole theory came up with won the Nobel Prize, and he said, "There's no out there, out there." And you start getting into this idea: is there is there actually anybody going anywhere, or are we going internal? Is this interdimensional? Are we going inside? You take the top guy for out of body experiences. He says you don't go out of your body; you go in your body. When you die, you go into your body. You go into a different dimension. There is and this is the sole idea: is there time and space? Or is it just here and now? Is there just one point and it's all here, it's all now? Is there an external reality? And that really gets into the messy stuff in terms of what's actually going on. And when you start looking at the experiencer reports, you start to see all this kind of time and space and all this stuff breaking down. So it's all going to be connected. It's all the same thing. And what I would say, it's all consciousness. Consciousness is primary. It's all working off of consciousness. And there may not be a real physical world in terms of the way we've always thought of this nuts and bolts consciousness is primary it's a verb and matter is a creation of consciousness and so um it's all it's all going to be connected remote viewing is basically um the the same thing it's shutting down you quiet the brain you you pop into the field but are you popping are you actually leaving your body and going or are you just tapping into the field, which is here and now, and there is no time and space? This is where it gets really, really bizarre and where I think you've, we've, we've got to start looking at this aspect that it may need not be as nuts and bolts as we think it is. So, Grant, when did you come to the realization that there was much more to this whole phenomena? 
Well, it came in this experience. This is why I say when you get a noetic flow state, if you've been in it, you know, people in psychedelics will talk about this. People in near-death experience will talk about this, that it is, you have a sense that you are getting reality. It's not a good idea. So when I had this 2012 download, it was like, this is how it works. I know this is how it works. It was it came with absolute certainty, and it's hard to explain unless you've been in it. And then in 2017, I have a second one, a very long, complicated one, uh, where I get 24 things that come into my head. And basically, I'm, I'm on a street. I'm walking down a street. It's very cold. I have to take off my glove. I'm writing this stuff down, and I know it's a flow state. I'm got to write this down, almost like Einstein said when he had his dream of the, the toboggan. He said, I knew I had to understand that dream. In fact, you could say, and I would say, that my entire career was based upon a meditation on that dream. When you get these noetics things, you know this is real. So I get this thing, and it says, is the world made out of nuts and bolts? If it is, that's one world. But if it's made out of consciousness, that's a completely different world. If it's one life, then that's one world. But if it's multiple lives, that's a whole different world. Is it a random world? If it's a random world, that's one world. But if it's a pattern world, that's a completely different world. And these 24 things, this, this, and it basically said, not only have you got everything wrong, it's exactly the opposite of what you think it is. So I have these two very dramatic download noetic experiences and they've all turned out to be right so the consciousness thing i didn't know how to spell the word consciousness couldn't have cared less in 2012 and everything has turned out to to fit in that what i saw there was real that it, it was accurate information that i was being given all right hold that thought grant cameron with us beyond the politics of ufos our program tonight his website is beyond i'm jeremy scott we'll be back But the show would be so much more entertaining if you'd call. Dial 855-790-TALK. That's 855-790-8255. You're traveling at the speed of light into the paranormal. Beyond the politics of UFOs with my guest, Grant Cameron. Beyond Presidential UFO, his website. So Grant starts looking into the UFO topic, has sightings in uh, Carmen, Manitoba, Canada, 1975, uh, known as Charlie Red Star, and starts to investigate the whole UFO subject. And then after you know getting, I supposedly denied the information at the ultimate top level, despite fi- filing Freedom of Information Act request after FOIA request after FOIA request... Uh, he turns his attention to the experiencer, and, and Grant has experiences himself. And so it leads to the whole consciousness thing, which is you know something that very much fascinates me. And these contact modalities and these different ways uh, that, that people engage uh, the, the supernatural, I guess, so to speak. Uh, so, Grant, can you walk us through some of these uh, modalities? Okay, um... 
so the UFO is only the one you start getting the crossovers with uh, particularly um, out-of-body experiences, the main one where uh, you get people who have um, been on board the ship will talk about the fact that they can't wear watches, that they will affect electronic equipment, you know, all the hear all these kind of things. Lights will turn on when they walk under or turn off when they walk under street lights and stuff like that. Well, near-death experience people report exactly the same phenomenon. Can't wear watches, can't touch electronic equipment. And that's when you start getting across and you're going like, wow, maybe there's something that's uh, maybe one's we've mistaken them and it's the same phenomena. Um, uh, lucid dreaming is uh, one of the modalities that I, I tried to work on uh, because there you – the work was done at Stanford University where you uh, start get this idea that um, – their physical is very sort of firm, but once you move out of that, you get into the more of the plastic uh, type realities where in a lucid dream experiment at Stanford where they would put people under and they would give the signal that they were in the dream and they, they were monitored with, with uh, you know, brain, uh, watching their brain and stuff like that. They'd give the signal and they would do experiments in, inside the lucid dream state. It was there where you could actually change uh do you say you had an evil alien come to you or an evil demon or whatever? You could actually say to them, what are you doing in my dream? Uh, and treat it with unconditional love and the thing will change into a positive being. And that you see all over the place. You see in lucid dreaming, you see it in other body experiences, and you start to see it in the um, experiences by um, abductees. So I'll give you one example. There's a guy, we helped him publish his book. His name is uh, Joseph Ronan out of Israel. And he had a story, he had a, his, his experience, the message he was given was this oneness message, which is probably the key message about the fact that everything is one. There is no separation. It's all, the, it's all basically the same thing. And so he has this experience in L.A. in about 1980, early 1980s. Um, and he is encountered by this being that looks like a gray, except he's green. And uh, the being is there. Um, he starts getting this download of this information. There's these other beings in the room. And when they leave, this is the important thing. When they leave, uh, they all grab hands and they uh, make a circle. And they start to circle and walk in a circle round and round. And they go faster and faster and faster and faster. And he said, next thing you know, they sort of turn translucent and they sort of turn into light. And then the light gets smaller, 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 smaller. until it's a little ball, like a little orb. And then, poop, the orb disappears. And that gets into this idea of what are we looking at here? If the being is is a flesh and blood being, um, uh, it turns into a an orb. So the question is, is it an orb? Is it a ball of light or is it a flesh and blood being? And if it's a flesh and blood, uh, blood if it's an orb, does it eat bacon, eggs, toast and coffee? So you see that the phenomena can change from one thing to another. And you see this over and over again that um, it, it's less physical then you would have you would you would think it is and you see this over and over again in the contact modalities that people are basically able to get into the field and then they talk about the fact that time and space don't exist so you get lucid dreaming uh you get remote viewing 
And it's always going to be the same thing, like the remote viewing. It's basically you quiet the mind. Well, you're not quieting the mind. You're quieting the left brain. Mr. Stupid, uh, you know, the the ego, the little voice in your head. You quiet it down and you can pop into this field. Same as in psychedelics. What you're doing in psychedelics, and they've done this at uh, London College, where they put the people on the the fMRI and they uh, people have the experience and they figure like the le- the brain's going to be lit up like a Christmas tree and uh, they get the person under whatever the whatever the psychedelic they're using and they discover that with the psilocybin that uh, the brain actually shuts down and this is the key is is you're shutting down the uh, w- what I call the hallucinatory reality or other people will call that the reality we live in is maybe the hallucinatory reality. So if you get people who are in the near-earth experience, in the out-of-body experience, in the uh, lucid dream, in the uh, UFO experience, they'll say, I had an experience and I was in the real world. You're living in the dream. And that, is, unless you've been in it, it's very, very hard to, to, to comprehend. But it's it's a, it, the, the world is less, uh, it's more pliable. You can, you can change it. And that's where you start to see Beings that I believe that can come in from that that reality. So I would say that all you're talking ghosts, you'll see the same thing. I'll, I'll tell as I mentioned before, I'll say to people, you know, uh, that think, well, you know, I really haven't been abducted. I've just had these kind of weird dreams. Can you tell me what's going on? And I say, well, do you have anything else? Like you ever have uh, something appear uh, out of nowhere, falls out of the ceiling or something that, uh, you know, appears and disappears and and they hide your cigarettes and your lighter or whatever. And, and they go. Can I can I go to the next room? Hang on. And they come back with a collection full of stuff. And everybody's got the same thing. They have these apports. They have their psychic. They uh, and you start seeing these crossovers that, you know, they can heal people. Fifty percent of all experiencers that have been on board the ship say they can come back and they can. They've either been healed 50 percent or 50 percent. They can heal other people like Ray Hernandez said. If I had a dollar for every uh, experiencer who can do recce, I'd be a rich guy. If you get near-death experience people who have had a near-death experience, 70% of them say they can heal people. And you start getting these bizarre things and you go like, we got to look at this. So that's what I did in the contact modalities. I put them all down. And in the end, I came to the conclusion that whatever it is, whether it's psychic phenomena, remote viewing, uh, near-death experience, out-of-body experience, uh, channelers, remote viewing, it's whatever your your little permission slip is. If you think it's going to work, you, you, you're you able to shut down the left brain. You're able to go in the field. You're able to uh, interact with these beings. So I would say that the dead people, the ghosts, the um, – the, uh, aliens they're all sort of in this other dimension so when you're going places you're probably going into another dimension and rather than moving out to a different place we think it's like there's these physical people out there in our physical world and the more you look at it the more it looks like it's going to be vibrational it's almost like the uh the visible spectrum we can only see a part of the visible spectrum and before 200 years ago uh, we didn't believe that that stuff existed. We'd say, "Oh, that's all nonsense." And now we know there are there are you know there's uh, Wi-Fi signals, there's radio, there's TV, there's you know electrical, uh, all this stuff that we didn't believe before. And it's a, the ability to open up and realize 
that it, it's a much more complex world, but I think it's all going to have to do with vibration. It's all going to be uh, possibly a world where it's all just one thing, where you get this in quantum physics, where uh, people start to look at, uh, you know, being able to change things in the past, uh, being, you know, being able to uh, signals going past the speed of light, all these really weird things that shouldn't be happening in a physical world, or you get the whole idea of quantum, uh, the brain, the, the brain, where they, we, you did the experiments in the 1950s where they were trying to find the, the, the memory center in the brain, and they took out all the little pieces of the, the rat brain, and the rat could still run the maze. And it didn't matter which piece of the brain you took out, and they came up with this holographic brain theory that the, the memory isn't anywhere. It's not in any one particular place in the brain. It's in some sort of holographic field in the brain, and then you get Edgar Mitchell coming, having his oneness experience coming back from the world and his contact modality was the same as mine it's like a uh, he sees the earth and he's in a sort of like a daydream and that was ha- what happened to me at Colin Andrews I didn't want to be in the lecture I was daydreaming I was thinking about going someplace else my left brain shut down I was suddenly in the field uh, or you get this uh, contact modality when you're going to bed people know this that just before you go to sleep uh, you can you can get into the field. You get these ideas before you go to sleep. Or Tyler D. When he wakes up, it's in his head. Or you can even take uh, uh, Edison. Edison used this. He had twenty five hundred inventions. And there's actually a statue that has him with the steel ball in his hand. And if you know the story, then the method he used, he knew this, and this is back in the or the late nineteen hundreds. Is he would sit there and he wouldn't sleep at night, and then he'd go into his lab and he would he would uh, meditate. He would sit there with his hand on the side of this chair with with his uh, arms on the chair, and he'd have this steel ball in his hand and he'd have a steel plate on the floor, and then he would sit there and of course he would fall asleep and his hand would relax the steel ball would fall hit the steel plate wake him up and he'd immediately write down what was in his head put the steel ball in his hand do it again do it again do it again and that's what he was doing he was going into this hypnotic state before you're coming waking up or, or this kind of stuff and this is the thing you're in this field and the field has all the information in it, and that's the basic idea all the information is there. It's the ability to access the field. We just have to understand how it works. Everybody can get in the field, but you have to know how to access the field, how to shut down the left brain. And we can even do this with, um, if you've seen the experiments that were done in Australia, uh, the Institute of the Mind, I think it's called, where they were studying savants. So one of the contact modalities I look at is savants. You have this woman in India who was able to do whatever the calculation was, like the 37th root of some number or whatever, and they the computer could could not do it. They had to reprogram the computer to do it. And then when they reprogrammed this computer to do it, it was still 17 seconds slower than this woman was able to do it in her head. And you get these people. And so you're going like, where are they getting this from? They are not calculating. These people cannot count to three. They can't button their shirts. And yet they can do calendar calculations and stuff. They're pulling this stuff out of a field. That's what they're doing. And and that's the that's when you start looking at this idea in, that they did it in Australia, where they would actually shut down the left brain. So they would magnetically stimulate the left brain, and they would tell a person, because one of the things these savant people can do, if you've seen Rain Man, the famous story in Rain Man, where he's got the toothpicks, and he says, you know, I, I need a toothpick for my, my pancakes. And then the the, the, uh, the other guy's saying, Give, get him a toothpick, get him a toothpick. He needs a toothpick for his pancakes. And she pulls out the toothpicks, and she's all upset, and she drops the, the toothpicks on the floor, and then the Rain Man goes, 246. And then he says, how many toothpicks in the box? She says, 
250. He said, well, you're pretty close, 246. And then she's, and he's walking away. She says, there's still four in the box. And, and people who are savants can do this. You can take a pail of peas and drop them on the floor. And as the peas hit the floor, the, the savant can tell you how many peas there are. So at the, at this university in, in Australia, they do this. So what they do, like all savants have left brain damage. And this is where the, you shut down the rational analytical brain. The right brain is able to tap into the field. And so what they do is they magnetically stimulate the left brain. And then they get this person to uh, look at a screen with with dots on it, and they'll have 120 dots, 150 dots, and they'll say, "Okay, how many dots?" And they'll do it before they magnetically stimulate. The guy gets two out of 20 right. Then they magnetically stimulate the brain, and the guy gets eight out of 20 right. So he looks at the screen, 115, and he's exactly right. And they 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 can shut the the left brain down by magnetically stimulating, or they'll say to them, "Okay, draw a cat," and the guy will draw a cat, and it looks like a stick cat. And then they'll magnetically stimulate the brain. And you'll see this in savants, people who have this ability to draw, that suddenly the guy's drawing a cat. It looks like a cat. And, and all they're doing is shutting down the left brain. So we're starting to understand how this works, how to do this, how to, to get into the field. And I say it's all in the field. And it's what I call a noetic flow state. All the information is there. It's all real. It's reality. It's the ability to access the field. And there's a pile of different ways that people will do it. And people will say, oh, mine's better. I'm I'm a psychic. Or I'd say, I'd, I'd talk to contactees and they say, I'm not a channeler. Don't put me in one of those channelers. They're, they're full of it. I'm not a channeler. And it's all the same thing. And there are, it's like uh, baseball players. There are, there are people who can play baseball and then there are professional baseball players. And it's the same thing where they're talking about a, a psychic or a savant or a medium, or a, a remote viewer, there are people who can do it, and then there are people who are really good at it. And it's just the ability to perfect it, and a lot, and it basically has to do with shutting the rational, analytical little voice in your head that keeps you in the physical world, that needs you in the physical world. But if you can shut that thing down, you can access all sorts of information that's in the field. So then with noetics, it introduces perception into this whole equation. It would have to because as someone's brain starts to comprehend the experience, uh, each person might perceive that differently. Yeah, but everybody that's in the field will tell you the same thing, especially if you get it into the psychedelics uh, and the um, the lucid dreaming. They'll say it, it was more real than the real world. And what I got, and this is the, the very hard thing to describe about noetics, unless you've experienced it, is you know it's real. Like it's uh, William James, the, the father of um, American psychology, had this. He was using laughing gas, and he realized that there was these these altered states of consciousness. And he came up with these mystical uh, states. And one of the, the things about the mystical state is it has this noetic quality, which means it, it the, the person realizes this is more than an idea it is actual reality and so you come in that you know like when i had this second one i knew i i knew i had to write this down so i wrote down like 15 of them it was very cold and then it sort of stopped the the, the flow stopped and i put my glove back on and then it came again i said oh i gotta get my glove back and you know write it down almost like einstein said i knew i had to understand that dream and so when i do that i did the book on called inspired the paranormal world of creativity that's when i first had the thing i started to look and 
And I knew if I'd had a near, if I'd had a download, then I, I started looking at downloads. I said, oh, I wonder if anybody else got one of these download things like I had, because it was so dramatic. It's like it, it really hits you. It like, you know, this is real. And that that's when I, I started to do it. And that's when I got the first one I came across was was uh, Paul McCartney with the, this song yesterday where he says, I wake up in the middle of the night and the entire song is in my head. And there's a piano in the room and I run to the piano and I, I sort of record it. And then I run around for two months and I say to everybody, have you ever heard this song before? Uh, you, you ever heard this? Because he was sure someone else had written it. He was so sure. And that's what you get with people. So I realized that all these musicians had had these download experiences, that they had got the thing and it's not like a dream. It's these, this noetic quality. So a musician that will get a song, Sting, his most famous song came in, a, in this noetic type thing where he said five minutes, 10 minutes tops. And I knew it was going to be a hit. Or the song American Woman, the famous song that came out of Winnipeg, where I live, uh, uh, the uh, Guess Who. Um, this song came, they sang it, they didn't even remember singing it. There was a guy in the audience who was taping the thing. And they grabbed the tape because they realized in 1968 this kid was going to bootleg the tape. And they said the song, like, where'd this song come from? They didn't even remember singing the song. It became three weeks on the top bestseller. It was like instantaneously came and they all just sang this song. And that's the whole thing is that it's not like a dream. It's not like, well, we got to figure it out. And there's all these weird things happening. People who have songs come will say, all I did was record it. All I did was put it down. It came as clear as day. I just recorded the notes. Even Michael Jackson said he was afraid to put stuff on his name on it because he didn't believe he had written it. And you get over and over again. So I have in the appendix to Inspired, I have 150 songs that came in dreams. I have 150 songs that came in less than five or ten minutes. And they are the most famous songs. They are never B-side songs. They're the most famous songs of all times. Old Little Town of Bethlehem, uh, Battle Hymn of the Republic. Uh, just piles and piles of songs that you think, oh, I knew where this come from. And you don't realize it came from some guy who it, it came to him in like seconds where he wrote it down. And it, it's that noetic quality that it comes very clear. It's there. It's the ability to get in there and then just record it. And musicians will talk about this all the time. And then I started to realize like Nobel Prizes. So I've got, I, the, well, I already mentioned the one from Einstein. Einstein said, I knew I had to remember that dream. In fact, you could say uh, the quantum atom came to Neil's Bohr. Niels Bohr was had a dream where he was on the racetrack and the guy's telling him how the how the atom works and the horses are in their on their lanes and they're not allowed to step on the line. They move from place to place. They're 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 exchanging places and they one has to move back for the other one to move in. They can't step on the lines. That's where the quantum atom came from. The uncertainty principle from from Heisenberg won the Nobel Prize. He was in behind the Bohr Institute. So when I went to Copenhagen, the first thing I said, I want to go to the Bohr Institute. I want to go behind the, the Bohr Institute because he was there and he watched this guy moving from 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 a, a light. There's these lights and it's a in the middle of the night he was walking. Bohr had gone to ski in Switzerland. He was there and, and it was the same thing. It's like he's thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. And and then he quiets the mind. He goes for a walk. That's what you do. You quiet the left brain. And he saw this guy walking under the light and he'd go into the dark and into the next light and then into the dark. And the uncertainty principle popped in his head. He quickly ran and got it. Same as the the, the, the whole thing with the, uh, if you take a look at the, the hologram. The hologram came the guy was sitting on a park bench. The um, the, the hologram what was the other one. The, um, the the hologram and the laser. The laser. He was sitting there watching, uh, waiting to go in a restaurant, and he'd been working on the problem. It was the same thing. Work on the problem. Work on the problem, and then quiet the mind. Go and sit down, and it pops into your head. Or Gary 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 Nolan 
who is with works with works on the whole DNA thing is the experiencer. And he said, I don't know how it works, but I know how to make it work. And he tells the story. You work on the problem. I work on the problem. I write the questions and all this kind of stuff. And then I take the question that I want answered. I put it beside the bed. And I wake up in the morning and the answer's in my head. So people know how to do this. It's just a matter of us learning how to do this, how to get in the field. And that's what the whole contact modality book about. It's saying that it, you, it's not one, pe- one person's better than another. It just means that there's all these different modalities. And if we start to listen to these people who've got these modalities, like the experiencers, and look at them and say, how are you doing this? You're going to start to learn how this works. And, and we can learn to get in the field and to uh, get this material out. And that's where the real material is. This is, I think, it's almost like I think Tesla or somebody said, all the inventions are already there. You just have to access them. And and Tesla had the, the alternating current thing. He talks about going through Budapest. He's walking in the middle of the park and all of a sudden it pops in his head and he, he draws it in the, in, the, in the dirt for the guy that's with him. He has the idea that comes in his head. And he said when he was doing inventions, he would actually run the invention in his head before he actually wrote it down. He would practice it and, and run the invention in his head. And that's the thing. All the inventions may be in the field. All the information is there. It's the ability to access that information. And we'll continue our program tonight beyond the politics of UFOs with Grant Cameron. I'm Jeremy Scott's Paranormal News with Brad Bernards is next. Stream us on your favorite apps from anywhere in the world, anytime, day or night. Into the Paranormal with Jeremy Scott. Abnormal News. I'm Brad Bernards. Our galactic neighborhood may be bustling with other worlds, but a new study estimates that a mere 300 million of those 100 billion planets may have the right ingredients for life. And some of them may be closer than we think. Here's Jeff Coughlin, planetary researcher at the SETI Institute. What we found is that we know that there's at least 300 million planets that are likely the size, uh, about between half the size of Earth and one and a half size of tons of Earth so that they're probably rocky, and that they're in the right distance from their parent star, so they're in the habitable zone, so they could have liquid water on their surface. So at least 300 million uh, planets like that, and likely more, that are in our galaxy alone. The study provides perhaps the most reliable estimate of habitability in our galaxy to date, according to reporting in Inverse.com. The researchers behind the new study claim that their estimate is much more accurate. Earth orbits the sun like a ship sailing in circles around its anchor. But what if someone or something cut that ship loose? Unbound from any star or solar system, what would become of a tiny world flying helplessly and heedlessly through interstellar space? What happens when a planet goes rogue? Brad Inspector reports for Live Science. Astronomers believe there could be billions, maybe even trillions of tiny planets in the Milky Way that don't orbit the sun. These free-floating worlds are called rogue planets. 
and astronomers from Poland think they've found one the exact same size as Earth for the first time ever. Most of these potential rogue planets appear to be enormous. Now astronomers believe they've detected a rogue world like no other, roughly the mass of Earth gallivanting through the gut of the Milky Way. Read more of the news at ParaAbnormalRadio.com. I'm Brad Bernards, ParaAbnormal News. This is the most important subject that we need to be discussing. Non-local consciousness this is the basis of this whole UFO mystery. The contact modalities. I was the one that came up with that term. Then everybody now is using it in our organization. That there are these different ways that humans are seemingly piercing this veer piercing this of veer. our 3D reality our into 3D this, this reality multi-dimensional into this reality. Multi-dimensional reality. Exploring the possibilities of the subjects you've always wanted to know, and those you never knew existed until now. Into the Parabnormal with Jeremy Scott. To the paranormal world, to, tra- to transcend the waking states of reality into realms of the magical and the mystical. These are contact modalities. My guest is Grant Cameron, the great G- Grant Cameron from the Great White North. His website, beyondpresidentialufo.com. Author of so many great books, including Alien Bedtime Stories, which I always recommend anything that has Grant Cameron's name on it. I might just go back and read this book at some point in time. But he's also author of the great new book, Contact Modalities, as well. Uh, The Keys to the Universe. And speaking of contact modalities, you say, Grant, that as you started to kind of put this into documented form for Ray Hernandez in his new book, that you started to get a list and you came up with 70 of these contact modalities. It's possible that there may be more and that literally the whole world is connected. Yeah, especially when you start looking at um, other um, stuff. My, my assistant Desta actually came up with quite a few of them because uh, she does the channeling thing. But if you get into Eastern um, stuff like Hindu, Buddhism, you'll see a lot of yoga stuff or monks that had all sorts of techniques where they can, you know, slow their heart down to, you know, just a flutter or change their, their temperature. And, and they, they, they've been working on this stuff for a long time. So what you see now is the physical sort of uh, materialistic world that we've been with since it was Karl Marx came up with it in about 1840, you know, that's just random, uh, just a mechanical world uh, and nothing behind it, you you start looking at quantum physics or you start looking and realizing that the Eastern uh, mystics 
uh, knew about this thing years, thousands of years ago, and we thought they were stupid because they couldn't build a cell phone. And it's it's all turning out that this is is true. Let me give you one more contact modality that I think is. Re- uh, I've I've worked on. I think I'm the only one that's sort of really researched the whole thing, which I think is a critically important one. And that is, I don't think it's even in the contact modality book, but. It has to do with um, what's called blindfold reading. I don't know if you've ever seen this with the little kids. Uh, I saw this, and I, as soon as I saw it, I went, oh, I know what they're doing. They're, the, because kids before they're 13 years old, or say about 13 years old, have a lot better ability to remember past lives, uh, to their, their, their left brain hasn't really come online yet. The, the, um, the, what do they call it, where the, um, myelinate the uh the the cortex and stuff like that and i saw a woman in england that was teaching these kids to read with blindfolds and they would uh get colors uh they were the one set of them was playing ping pong with these blindfolds on and of course you think ah come on this these kids are playing around but these kids are like seven eight years old and i immediately figured this has got to do with the right brain left brain thing the kids are way better because their left brain hasn't come online, the ego hasn't come online, and that's when you start to lose it. That's why I believe that um, the whoever's doing the abduction experience thing, they're taking kids when they're very young. Because they're once you're 20 years old, they could care less about you because your your brain is so full of garbage, and uh, they would need huge rubber boots and a big shovel to get an idea into your head to get it. Whereas young kids, they're very their their brain is very plastic, impressionable, almost. Yeah. And and so I saw these kids and, and I went to the woman and I basically interviewed her. Then I realized there were some Russians who had done it. Then I realized that the uh, Indonesian um, um, royal family had invented this thing hundreds of years ago and that the uh, uh, Indonesian military has done this thing where they blind, they put, they put a hood on these guys, throw them out of a plane in the middle of the night and they have to move around. Uh, and I started to realize this is this is the deal. And I started to interview. I get about uh, and they're on my um, White House UFO YouTube channel. I have about five interviews I've done with the Romanians, the Russians, uh, with this woman from England and uh, a, a guy. I don't know if you've interviewed him, Rob Freeman. Now, Rob Freeman uh, is a guy. He's uh, got a lot of money. He's got big camera setups and he tries to film UFOs with nine different cameras and stuff like that. And he got into this whole thing and he knew this thing about the right brain, left brain, you have to shut down the left brain. And he said to me, I said, well, you know, only kids can do this. Like, or this woman in England will only teach kids. Once you're 13, she won't teach you anymore because it's almost impossible to teach. And he said, no, no, we're doing it. We're doing it. And I said, well, you've been working on this for two and a half years and you're basically got big letters and you've got colors of paper and stuff. Yeah, you can do it, but you can't do it very well. You can take a kid and this is the deal. You can take a kid, put a blindfold on a kid at seven, eight years old, and you can teach this kid to see colors in like five minutes where they're looking through this blindfold. And when I saw that, I said, this is the most important thing I've ever seen because this is basically what happens when you have a near-death experience. So people will say, oh, the near-death experience, the brain is still online. It's still working. I don't care what you say, man. It, when you have a near-death experience, if the person is seeing the doctor and seeing the nurse and can describe their, what they're wearing and all this kind of stuff, the eyes are taped shut to stop the cornea from being scratched. Their eyes are closed. You ain't seeing anything. And this is what's happening. This is the same site that is is in a near-death experience. And it shows that people can see without their eyes and they can hear. So you see these kids. And I would watch all these interviews and I would uh, do all this sort of stuff. And I, I, was, I realized that 
people in near-death experiences can also hear. And one of my assistants is completely deaf. So I was talking to her about this. And I watched these little kids. And you would see these kids in interviews. They would say, you know, my hearing actually got better. I can hear someone from a mile away. And two kids independently said this. So it wasn't the trainer was telling me this. I said, it's the same thing. They're picking this up. That the the we think that we see through our eyes. We see through our, hear through our ears. And that is part of it. But you can cut it off. Or you'll see these kids, the, the Chinese were working on this. With kids with blindfolds. Or kids that you could feel, could see through their fingertips and stuff like that and you start to realize this whole idea that you can get in the field but the the kids with the blindfolds is the most dramatic thing nobody's picked up on it yet in terms of doing research that you can actually get these kids to reproduce and you know that they have they always had the experiment with the um uh there's a group in utah i asked them whether they could do this and they have these kids if you've ever seen the one uh from the utah group it's a martial arts thing where they teach these kids they have the the one girl where they have these games, like a, a Olympic games with these kids playing, and they're running through these obstacles, and then they have to jump over these things, and they have to write, read something on a board, and they write down what was on the board, and they count money, and they do all this kind of stuff, and they throw bean bags at, uh, at colored bean bags at the right, uh, the right uh, target and stuff like that, and they do this thing in the one minute and 56 seconds. It's absolutely amazing, and, and you realize that um, these kids are tapped into – this field that it's all in the field and that you if you can if you can perfect this kind of stuff you can actually prove that these kids are seeing through the blindfold so now everybody will say oh they're peeking out of the side of the blindfold or whatever and there's no way that you've got all these kids doing this or the number of groups so i've got a lot of interviews and i basically talk to all the people who are doing the training and i ask them how is this done and they basically say the same thing it's the ability to shut down and that's why kids can do it really really well and adults can't do it very well at all that within five minutes you can teach a kid with a blindfold on to see colors of paper and these kids are reading books they're reading like they got the book open and they're reading the book and it's just absolutely amazing that you can see the talents that we we realize that the, the physical world is not what you think it is it's much more complex and we have much more ability to do things that 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 uh, uh people can do or even savants so you get the rain man Twelve thousand books. He could you could go to any page in any of the books and tell him what's on this page, and he would tell you what's on the page. So memory is absolutely perfect. It's the access to memory that's not perfect. We everybody's got perfect memory. It's the ability to access it, and all these talents are there. And we've got to look at the people who have the talent and figure out what are they doing that is changing, and we can get tremendous amounts of material, tremendous amounts of information by tapping into what these people have tapped into. We just think they're oddities, like these these savant kids. It's just like kind of a, that's pretty cool. That guy can play 8,000 songs, any song he's ever heard and stuff like that, and play it in any key and any tune and stuff like that and change it around. And and, and, uh, we just think it's an oddity. We don't realize what's actually going on, that there's something very magnificent, like the experiencers, that if you watch them, you can learn an awful lot about how reality works because i i will almost guarantee you from what i've seen we have it totally backwards we have we have we haven't got a clue of of what's going on we think we know how reality works but if you take even the thing of a of a simple cell a cell is dividing we say oh it's just uh, we we use what's called naming theory oh it's just a savant it's just uh, a placebo uh cells just dividing you take a cell that divides 
and it will divide within a couple of hours. It has a hundred trillion atoms. It has to source those atoms, take those atoms, put them in the three-dimensional spots in the right spot, right place, and it will produce the right type of cell. There's 210 different cells. There's a hundred trillion cells in the body, and and they they die at a at a million per second and they were replaced by the right types of cells and all this is done by this cell and we say oh it's just a cell dividing yeah it's it, all we do is use naming theory to make this stuff go away just give it a name and make it go away when you start looking at how complex stuff is you realize it is way more complex than we have and and it it's more dramatic and we haven't got a clue of what's going on Grant, we're going to get to some questions that are coming in through the various channels uh, in just a moment. But, uh, you know, as we talk about these methods or these contact modalities, maybe one way that it could be described is anything that could be described as contact with the unknown. That's really what we're talking about. And so maybe there's an infinite number of those. Yeah, well, the unknown would be in the field. So we, we, we say, oh, it's 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 just weird stuff. But it is somewhere. And and if you get the, the basic idea of it's all consciousness, then and if it's all one thing, if it's all like that's one of the, the main message of the contactees, you'll say, what's the main message? And they'll say the main message is one. It's all one thing. The one is the all, the all of the one. Uh, the one guy asked the tall gray on the ship, what's your concept of God? He said, we are one with the one who is all. You hear this over and over and over. The concept that it's all one thing. And and so it's it's all going to be different levels of something. And we are in one level and we think we know everything. But it's almost like the the idea of the uh, the uh, the spectrum, the physical spectrum. We see like one trillionth of one percent of the spectrum. We just see this little thing and we think we know it all. We think we understand it all. And it's just uh, there's much more than than we do. And the more we have, I mean, we we have the thing where in, in the in the 1492 uh, or as Einstein said, you cannot solve a problem using the same information that you use to create the problem. So the only way you're going to learn something new is to bring in new information that is not in that you're already using. Because I think Niels Bohr said, we think we're doing research. All we're doing is reshuffling our prejudices. So we take the same material and we spiral it around, spiral it around. But it's not until someone goes outside the field and brings in new information and everybody says, ah, it's crazy. That's bull. Yeah, no way that's happening, whatever. So Christopher Columbus goes across the ocean. He says, no, 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 the, the world isn't flat or, you know, this kind of thing where we bring it in or all, all these ideas that have come along. We believe that everything was was solid until they ran the gold foil experiment. And then suddenly they realized like, oh, it's all like 99.99999% space. And the more the information comes in from the outside, but you have to bring in new information. And that's where you get it in the field. And you've got to find people who are weird, who are uh, doing something very, very different. Go to them. But I'm still going to say it's all going to be the same thing. It's just a it's a different vibration. It's a different part of the spectrum. Uh, you can call it the unknown, whatever you want. But we are stuck in one little uh, area, and we think that's all there is. And the more it goes along, the more we, we move along, the more we realize that 
we haven't got it right. And you, you can even go back to the turn of the, the 20th century where they said, we've discovered everything. Or Niels, uh, Max Planck, who uh, started quantum physics, his professor in 1874 said, you shouldn't get into physics. We've discovered it all. We understand it all. You're wasting your time. Or the guy from the, 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 the ran the, the patent office in 1916, everything that's been discovered has been discovered. Or at the end of the 20th, the 19th century, they, the, the one guy said, we've discovered covered everything all we have to do is take it to six decimal places we have this ego that thinks we have everything understood the more we go along the more we realize stuff we got is wrong it gets more complex more magnificent and it's going to continue to do that that we just have to keep open and realize that my 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 download in 2017 my noetic experience basically said you have got literally everything wrong you have literally got everything backwards you think it's this it's actually the opposite over and over and over again and i think that will turn out to be true that we're just making a lot of false assumptions and we just keep recycling these things and and putting them out until someone comes along and then it, it gets finally accepted or as as uh, Max Planck said, uh, you know, science advances one funeral at a time, all the skeptics die off and the new idea comes in and it can be, becomes accepted. You don't really convince anybody of anything. But the more we go along, the more we realize that what we believed 100 years ago, nobody believes any of that anymore. And 100 years from now, we're not going to believe anything we believe now. It just keeps getting more and more complex. What false assumptions uh, had you and maybe other people made uh, that you've come to realize is not accurate? Well, the consciousness was the main one. The, the fact that it's made the world's made out of nuts and bolts. That was that was uh, uh, one of the key ones. Uh, the idea of it random. Is it a random world or is it a, a pattern world? That comes down to this thing about the near-death experiences where we, we assume, oh, the guy just got grabbed off the street by by an alien and, and probed and stuff like that. And now you start asking people, like when I asked Kathy Martin, uh, who runs the uh, experiencer thing for MUFON, and I said, Kathy, you ever looked into this uh, soul contract thing? that everybody's agreed to this sort of thing. Because I asked Mary Rodwell about it, and she agreed. I asked, uh, um, um, uh, well, a lot of the main, uh, Yvonne Smith and stuff like that, this whole idea that this isn't random at all. This is an agreement that you may have been uh, an, an alien in your past lifetime, and you've agreed to come in. The, the time is right. Uh, you, you agreed to be at this time in this place to do this particular thing because you're going to raise consciousness. You, this, the world's going to change at this point in time, and you agreed. And so I asked uh, Kathy Martin about that. I said, Kathy, you, did you look into this thing about the soul contract? What do you think? She said, Well, I wondered about it myself. So I actually had myself regressed back, and I actually heard the words come out of my mouth. I agreed to this, and that's the so you get that kind of thing where you believe it. It's a random world. And then you start looking and you say, well, is a near-death experience random? If you have 54, 55% of all experiencers having a near-death experience, is that a random event? You start going, maybe this isn't random. Maybe this is all like a pattern, almost like the the idea of Michael Newton. I'm a big Michael Newton fan, this idea of life between lives, that we, we agree to come into the world. We know what we're going to do. We're coming here to do certain things. We make agreements. You and I agreed before we were born that we were going to do this interview. You're going to do the radio show. I was going to do a research and we're all going to play this game and as Shakespeare said all the world's a stage and all the men and women are but actors they have their entrances and their exits and every man plays many roles that appears to be what I think is is possibly going on that is not as random um, the what were some of the other ones the thing about uh, one life and multiple lives so if you say it, it's one life uh, then uh, you have all these these ideas that uh, you got you got lucky 
but if if you have multiple lives, then you see, uh, you know, everybody's going to be you, be a kid in a cage. Everybody's going to get to starve to death. Everybody's going to get to uh, drown. Everybody's going to have all these experiences. You don't get to be these, you know, the rich Western guy every time. And all the all your concepts start to change when you when you take a look at that kind of stuff. Or the idea between uh, knowing and believing is a big one. Science will always say, or the, the the people in the nuts and bolts UFO community will always say to me, uh, "Well, Grant, you, you're talking about these experiencers. They just they just believe they've had experience." And I go, "No, it's all belief. You believe you're a skeptic. You believe you're scientific or whatever." And people make this mistake about knowing and believing. It's all believing. We, we people will say, "I know you just believe," and they'll play this game and they'll they'll hold to it fast. But in the end, it's all belief. It's all going through your conscious mind. It's all belief system. The only people that can really know are the people that have the experience. That's when you get into this noetic thing where I have the experience and other people have had this experience where they say, I know it was different. I This was part of reality. The only person that can really know, you can't be on the outside and say, oh, I know what you experienced. I know it happened on the ship. You don't. You weren't there. And people will play this game. I'm, I'm rational, analytical, and I'm, 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 uh, I, I can be independent and I'm measuring stuff and you're just uh, believing it's it in the end it all comes down to belief that that what we believed 100 years ago we don't believe now and that you know in 1492 Christopher Columbus got a hard time because nobody believed him every new idea has been hit with this disbelief thing that people say no I know you're just you're just imagining this stuff and uh, so that was some of the main the main ones but uh I, I had them one after another that came into my head, and it was, it it was absolutely. I I couldn't. I was shaking for two days after it happened. Same as the first one. When I walked out of that Colin Anders lecture, I knew I had changed. I knew that I had been given something, and and what it had given me was not anything that was new. What I got in the 2012 thing was things that I had already done, and you'll see that. That's where Gary Nolan says, you work through the problem, you work through the problem, and then you put the question beside the bed. People can do this all the time. People use this all the time. You put the question that you need answered beside the bed, and you have an intention, and and your mind, your subconscious mind will work it out during the night and give you the answer. So when I had the 2012, it wasn't that I had anything really original. It was just it put three things that I already knew together in my head instantaneously where I went, oh, I could see the connection. It was like, oh, that's how it works. And the three things were, number one was, I mentioned that top secret memo that had started me in the 1970s, where the Canadian government said, we were also told by American officials that other things might be associated with the flying saucers, such as mental phenomena. And I knew this weird thing that the Canadians had talked about, this mental phenomena thing, back in 1950 already. And and then the next thing, the, and all these things came instantaneously. The second, we were, do, we were dealing with this Dr. Eric Walker, who we chased around for eight years. And at one point, he we were asking about MJ-12. Is MJ-12 all, is it just 12 guys? Is it an international group? He said, look, let me ask you a question. We you know about ESP. And the guy that was interviewing had no answer. So he said, look, unless you understand about ESP and how it works, you will not be taken in by the control group. Very few people understand how it works. That was 1991. I did not know until 2012 when I had the down what he was talking. I said, 
Oh, that's what Walker thought. He's talking about the mental phenomena that the Canadians were talking about. This this idea that there's this mental aspect to the UFO phenomena, to the flying saucers. And the third one was Jan Harson. Jan Harson, 1993, two years after Walker, is is um, t- listening to Ben Rich give the speech at UCLA. And Ben Rich said, because of technology take ET home, we've discovered the mistake in the equation. And he said, can you believe this? And he, he goes to him and he'd had the experience as a young kid. And he wanted to know. He wanted to build a flying saucer. He wanted to him and his brother were trying to build a flying saucer. So he went to Ben Rich. He said, Ben, how does it work? I've always been interested in propulsion. How did they get here, Ben? How does it work? And Ben turns around and says exactly what Walker said two years before. Look, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And he said, all things in time and space are connected. That's how it works. And Tom DeLong had the same thing. The head scientist at Lockheed Skunk Works told him it was all consciousness. So it all fits together when you start looking at all the evidence. Grant Cameron, my guest, Beyond the Politics of UFOs, will be back. Make sure to subscribe to Into the Parabnormal's free YouTube channel for shows, news, and exclusive reports. I'm Jeremy Scott in the program tonight, Beyond the Politics of UFOs. 855-790-8255, toll free in North America. That's 855-790-TALK. And outside North America, 503-506-0396. International and Skype callers at ITP51. A question from Susan. Uh, Grant, is there any relationship between the pineal gland and these contact modalities um that's something i haven't really worked on there's um there's some discussion about the dmt thing that the produces the dmt there's a connection but um not in what i've seen i haven't really uh, i'm not saying there isn't because everybody has this connection that there is the pineal gland is involved but it's something i haven't really looked at fair enough you mentioned the people who know, a no versus a belief. One of those people yeah. who I had on my program recently, I know you have done an interview with as well, and that is Yossi Ronan. Yeah. And yeah, Yossi is one of those people who has had face-to-face contact and has been able to gain some rather remarkable insight from them, I think, uh, you know, that, that hasn't really seen the light of day until now. Yeah, and he gets he again gets the message of one, the whole the whole idea that he got. And his is kind of interesting that he can actually go back into the experience. Like he only had the one experience that he recalls, but he can actually go back into the experience and get more material. But that's the, the I think the book is called One, and it's this idea that there is only one thing. And the one the one thing I would add to that from the contact modality, or not the uh, from the uh, download I got was 
the idea that everything is a verb and not a noun. There are no nouns. This idea that the, the it's all fluid, that it's growing, it's... Um, so we, with the left rational analytical brain, always wants to put things into nouns. So it's uh, there's you versus me, all this sort of stuff. And I think when it comes down to it, it's going to be it's all it's all fluid, it's all consciousness, it's all moving, it's all developing. Uh, your body is not the same, uh, you know. Every day, all the cells are dying, and and all this kind of stuff. So we sort of want to put things as nouns and name them, and and sort of make them go away when when it's in fact, one thing, and it's all fluid. It's all moving, uh, moving consciousness, developing, uh, getting more complex. Even some of the quantum physics stuff now gets into the idea that it's all information, and that, that the the universe learns, which I would uh, say fits into what the kind of ideas that I got was that it's it's comp- it's getting more complex all the time. It's learning. It's got a pattern. And it just follows all these rules, but it's very neutral so that people will say there's good and bad. There's, you know, I'm lucky, unlucky, whatever. It's the universe is completely neutral. There are these rules that it has and uh, there is nothing random going on in the universe. It's all uh, how you work inside the pattern that uh, and there's no there's no good and bad. It's all it's all experience in a reincarnation world in in a one life world. It's all going to be, oh, you poor guy, you know, you got uh, you got locked up or you died as a kid or whatever. But in a multiple life universe, it all becomes experience that everybody gets to play all these different roles. Everybody gets to learn things. And it's all experience rather than good and bad. And, and I did an interview, which is kind of a, a weird interview where you start to see these patterns again where I got three people who all said the same thing, which is really controversial. It's in the Michael Newton stuff, was the idea that everything is perfect. That way you can say, oh, this is terrible. This guy's evil, this whatever, whatever. And uh, Michael Newton, basically, they say, you agree to this, you agree to that. Um, and you, there's really uh, no good or bad. And I actually ran into three people. And I do an interview. I'm not sure if it's up on the YouTube channel yet, but they all had this experience. And one had it in a float tank. So float tank is one of the contact modalities. There's a guy in L.A., uh, who does a lot of fasting. He does a lot of float tank stuff. And I have two of my chapters in contact modality are his one in the float tank and, the, and his encounter with his dead father uh, where he crosses over and gets this material. But he has this experience where he suddenly realizes everything's perfect. And he, it comes with this this noetic experience where he knows this is for real. But he said, like, I can't believe this. I just can't believe this is for real, that, that everything that's happening is exactly the way it's supposed to be. Nothing's out of place and whatever. And he was afraid to tell his wife or his kids or anybody. And he happened to tell me, I was at Mount Shasta with him, he told me. And then I came across a woman who does uh, regressions. So this is another one you can use contact modalities, you know, re- with regression, uh, take people, uh, shut down the left brain to regression. So she's doing the uh, the Dolores Cannon method and she's doing Michael Newton regressions. She's sitting there reading a book and she gets the same thing. She said, suddenly it's like she, this experience happens. Everything's perfect. She's saying this is totally weird. So she tells me a story. And then I got a third woman who has a near-death experience. And this is a kind of a famous one 50 years ago. She's on a motorcycle, goes face first into the into the the the, the, the concrete and uh, is suicidal and, and then has this experience where she realizes everything's perfect. So you, you get these crossovers again. So I interviewed all three of these people at the same time and they basically tell the same story. So you 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 start to realize that 
the world isn't quite the way we see it. And that you get you when you get three people telling that very bizarre story, which makes no sense whatsoever, and you get this similarity, you start to realize that the the universe knows what it's doing. It's very neutral. It's all rules and regulations. Or you'll even get the thing where where rational analytical people will say, uh, um, you know, we we've got the uh, Hawking said this. We don't need God. We've got the laws of physics. And it's and I say, who the hell is that? And, and you. D- 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 um, Terence McKenna talked about that, the, the limit case for credulity, where science believes, uh, you know, you give me the one big miracle. I get all the laws of the universe. I get all the matter, all the energy. And I get this. You give me this one big miracle and then I'll explain everything else as being random. But you have to explain where all this stuff is coming from. And you realize that it's this very, very complex thing that is learning, that's a verb, and that is very neutral, and that we work inside this thing, and that we come back over and over again, and uh, almost like uh, Jacques Vallée, I think, had the expression, it's a giant kabuki theater, and the only message is we're not alone. And uh, I used to think he was nuts, and now I've got more and more to the fact where I sort of uh, go along where uh, he'll, from time to time, I've heard the story that people will want to sort of talk to him and he'll bang the table and say, this is not solid. That we make all these, we keep making these assumptions. These, uh, we, we believe what we see and the vast majority of the things we see, even the idea of, of is something physical or is it just uh, a, a giant quantum soup? This idea, uh, like um, the idea of the observer effect, that nothing comes into reality until there's an observer. Or where, that Einstein hated so much. He said, I'd like to know the moon is behind me when I'm not looking. And that's where uh, John Wheeler won the Nobel Prize and a number of them said, it's a participatory universe. Nothing happens until there's an observer. And when you get into that kind of weird stuff, where you start to question whether anything's even there and wh- unless people are looking, uh, you start to realize with quantum physics, it's becoming more and more like the, the UFO world where we were the crazy people, but you can go to quantum physics and it's basically saying the same thing that the weird UFO people are saying. It's all coming together, the Eastern mystics, the quantum physics people and the UFO thing. And we're going to be, I, I believe the paranormal world is going to be right about everything that they've said. All the stuff that people have talked about ghosts all uh you know all this kind of stuff it's gonna all be true nobody was imagining there was no hallucination it's all the ability that these people had to access some sort of field some sort of energy some sort of dimension and pick up this stuff we're going to be right about it all even the the ufo thing we used to be the crazy people and now it's like 2017 and they put it out and say oh yeah we had a ufo program was running and nobody did anything nobody jumped off a bridge nobody committed suicide it was like oh yeah we knew that all along well we've been saying people have been saying that for 70 years and everybody said no no it's not true and then when it when when it comes it is true then everybody just sort of pretends they never made any fun of the ufo people it's all going to be true i believe in the end Uh, going back to what you said about noetics and and talking about the brain and thinking about maybe the synapses and part of the central nervous system uh, because that kind of ties it all together have you uh, found any link there well the brain is the brain is as they said it's just a, a sender and a receiver it's like a radio thing there is no tv inside there is no uh football game inside the tv 
And that's what the people will want in neuro, neurology will want you to say is, oh, it's all in the brain. It like psychedelics is just brain chemistry. Uh, all this stuff is just illusion. It's all this kind of stuff. But the brain is just a center receiver. The uh, I believe that consciousness is is in a field. It's in a non-local field. And the brain is able to pick this up. So we can uh, through even through the MRIs where they will uh, show in a lot of the uh, a lot of the. Um, what's the guy's name? I don't know if you've ever, um, Andrew Newberg. If you interview him, he, he runs a lab at, um, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson university in Philadelphia. And what he does is he takes all the weird people. So he takes mediums, puts them in MRI machines. He takes, uh, psychics, praying people, uh, monks who can lower their body temperature. He puts all these people and he says, basically saying, Oh, are these people making this up? Because that's what people say. Oh, the guy's just making it up. He's doing cold reading. Mediums do cold reading, all this kind of stuff. Physical mediums, they're just, they're just making up stories, whatever. And what he does, he puts these people in MRI machines, and he realizes there's a pattern. That when the praying monks are doing the pattern, this part will light up, this part will shut down, and the people are actually doing what they're saying they're doing. And that basically proves that uh, the brain, and I would say the, the basic rule is, that when you get these paranormal experiences, it's not that the brain is doing anything. The brain is shutting down. You're shutting down the hallucinatory reality. So when you have the default mode network shuts down, then you have this oneness experience. So the default mode network is the ego, that the idea that I am a separate from you, uh, we're just random objects floating around in time and space. But when you shut down the default mode network, you shut down the ego and you shut off the bubble machine. And then the person goes, oh, I'm one with everything that is. That's the psychedelic, this thing where he has the he does the ayahuasca and, and he goes, I suddenly realized everything was one and and everything was connected and everything's alive. And that's the same question. That's the same. But what you're doing is you're shutting down the hallucinatory reality that we're being produced that the the idea that we are that we're ego that we are separate or the idea that we are you know this this oneness idea that everything's alive people but that's what happens is when you shut that part of the brain down the illusion turns off that it is creating the illusion to keep you in the physical world to believe your 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 um your uh you need to survive but when you get the near-death experience, when the brain completely shuts down, when the whole body shuts down, the experience continues. And is one with the universe. It's all alive. It's all meaningful. You get the same sort of experience, and the brain is not even involved. So the brain is just something that that gets us, keeps us in the physical world that is created here, and it's the ability to shut the brain down. And uh, that's when the experiences happen. When you can shut off the 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 bubble machine or the illusion that the the brain is creating. So, Grant, uh, what are the methods that you used to have contact with non-human intelligence? <clears throat> well, um, I guess you could use called non-human intelligence. I just call it the intelligence behind the phenomena, because I'm not really the the more I go along, the less I'm sure. Maybe non-ordinary. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the yeah. title of your book. So, I mean, yeah. So I, um, well, what happens is with me, the one I used the most was uh, the um, the technique of daydreaming. Uh, so what I do is I do a lot of walking. I'll walk maybe four hours a day, um, and I'll just listen to podcasts. But I just sort of tune out of the podcast, and my brain will will shut down. It'll just sort of uh, daydream. 
and stuff will come into my head. And I know when it comes into my head, I've got, always got a piece of paper in my pocket and a pen and I write it down. I use that. I have, I have tried the lucid dreaming. I was never able to lucid dream. I tried the hypnosis, was never not able to do the hypnosis. I'm doing a major study on psilocybin uh, that I'm able to do, and I'm able to control it. I'm able to uh, get in the field. That is one of the more dramatic ones that uh, John Hopkins is doing, NYU is doing, UCLA is doing, London School, uh, the London College is doing. A lot of them are doing this thing where they're realizing there are these fields that will completely, uh, like almost like sh- shake the snow globe. Uh, uh, you know, 80% of people uh, who smoke, uh, you get the the patches like 17%, 80% after one year with one dose. Uh, 59% of all people drinking, uh, never touch drink again. Uh, uh, non, um, um, non, what do you call it? Um, uh, depression, non-treatable depression, PTSD, uh, you see all these kind of things, and it's basically this idea of, of shutting the brain down, reprogramming the brain, that the brain can go back to like almost like a childhood thing, reprogram the brain. I think that's a very powerful thing that I'm working on right now. And the one I want to work on that I think is the most significant is this kids with the blindfolds that I uh, I, I want to work on that because I think that is the one that you can actually take into a lab and you can prove to people it is not what you think it is. If these kids can can see through blindfolds and can can see things in other rooms at other time because that's what they'll describe is that there's no time and space it's the same thing so if you see the near-death experience experiments that they have they have a, 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 a in the operating room they'll have a little uh, um, a little shelf that has a, a thing on it that if the person has a near-death experience they're supposed to read the shelf well nobody's ever read the shelf because when you have a near-death experience that's the last thing you're doing is looking for a shelf you don't even know if the shelf is there you're looking at your body and going what the heck is going on here and you're floating around the room or whatever and and so i asked the people uh, that were doing the training in england i said do you think you can do this and i asked the utah people and they said yeah we think we can do this that you get a kid who's reading the blindfold and then say Oh, can you uh, read what's up on that shelf over there? If that kid can do that, where you've got something up on a shelf up on the roof, and this kid with a blindfold on is able to read what's on that shelf, the whole world changes. Everything just crumbles. Your idea of reality is going to crumble. And I think that is one of the most significant things I've ever seen is this ability of these people to see with blindfolds, to hear. It's absolutely revolutionary in terms of how we understand reality works. Just absolutely fascinating. Uh, Grant, so tell us about Enrique Villanueva and some of the protocols uh, and, and practices that he learned, uh, where he learned, and then how um, you were involved in, in, in a retreat at Mount Shasta where these methods were used uh, to contact uh, the non-ordinary, I guess. Okay, um <laughs> This is um, there's actually two of them, and again, it's the, the contact modality. So there's there's a couple of them. There's uh, Enrique Villanueva, and then there's uh, Ricardo Gonzalez. And when you look at them and you look at their history, uh, you end up these kids are like uh, you know 13, 14 years old, and they're meditating. And I go, you were meditating at 14 years old? Like when I was a 14 year old boy, that's the last thing that was on my mind is meditating. I mean, it's like come on. And these kids, you see these patterns that these kids. They, 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 you see the training that they've got, and they, they come out of this, and they are, have learned to get in the field. So they are uh, these contactees from, and most of them are from Peru, from uh, Bolivia, and it has to do with their 
their sort of their background. They see the paranormal world a little bit different. It's a religious type thing where they're seeing it. But the bizarre thing was these two books that I wrote are basically just two experiences. And you start to get in the field where weird things start to happen. Synchronicity is one of the the ways that we are sort of trained where the world is really weird. It doesn't work the way you because people all have synchronicities. And when you really get in the field, you start getting synchronicities left, right and center. And what happened to me was. Um, I had the experience with where I wrote the uh, the book on music, where Chris Bledsoe, um, I had the experience with him, with the dog. I won't get into it. A very bizarre experience. I went with him, so I know he's the real the dog. was bleeding out, basically. Yeah. And and, and he, you know, the, he sort of heals the dog. I, I'm just blown away because the blood is all over me. As well, as and so let me interrupt. This is like a, the second story we're hearing about of a of a dog involved in one of these uh, experiences. I just wanted to paint the connection between uh, Chris Bledsoe and Ray Hernandez for my audience. Yeah, and and there was actually an experience before, like the the way the the dog thing. I guess I should explain it. The way the dog thing happened. I'm going to lecture, and this is where I meet Ray Hernandez. So I'm on my way to Ray Hernandez. I'm at the citizens hearing. I'm heading for Florida, and I, and Chris Blossom's right on the way. So I said, Chris, can I stop and see you? And I'm really not that interested in the story. I just want to see this bizarre burning tree where uh, Mel Gibson wanted from uh, you know uh, the the movie guy wanted to do his story and he wanted to sign. And so they're looking for the sign, and this tree starts to burn three times in in six hours. Bizarre story. So uh, I go down there, take a photograph of the burning tree, and I'm in the living room with him. And uh, we're sitting there playing on Facebook, and his wife and his kids are all gone. And I said, well, okay, I'm going to head for Florida. And and, uh, he said, yeah, okay. And then all of a sudden, he says, what are you you doing back in the house? And these three dogs are in the living room. And he said, how'd you get back in the, and he has a big dog, the Nelly was the one that was, was, uh, was cut. And then he had the medium sized dog and then this little Chihuahua. So these three dogs are there and he said, how'd you get back in the house? And we go to the front door and the front door is wide open. He goes, get outside. And he puts them outside. So I leave, I go to Florida and I get to Florida and he's got an email already. He said, you know what happened twice more after you left? I, I went back in the house and I'm in the house and the dogs are back in the house and the front door is wide open. And then I went, I put dogs back outside and went into the bathroom and uh, I, I'm in the bathroom. I come out of the bathroom and the dogs are back in the house. And I'm thinking to myself, ah, what? You left the door open. I mean, come on. This is garbage. You know, I didn't. <laughs> but so when I came back, that's when the dog happened within 10 minutes after I came back. And the, the message was to me was clear. I was arguing with Chris about what happened. He thought it was the shadow people. I said, no, no, I, you know what? They wanted it in the movie. They want, you know, you're doing a movie. They wanted the movie. And they did it to me because they said, you're not impressed with letting the dogs out. Watch this. So the blood was all over me. It happened right beside me. And I'm filming the whole thing. And uh, so he he gave me this message. He said to me, he said, I've got a message from you from the Guardians just after that, about 2014. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, the message is that the message is in the music. And I said, well, Chris, you may be talking to the wrong guy. I don't listen to music. I have no interest in music. And it led to the the book tuned in the paramount world of music because uh, Neil Neil Young was one of the songs he told me to listen to after the gold rush, which talks about the 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 flying saucers coming down and taking the chosen ones off the planet and stuff. And I'm going, Neil Young, he grew up in my city. I couldn't believe it, and that I, that's why I did the music thing. So, uh, and you're going to a break, but I'll I'll just say so when the the Shasta thing happened, I didn't want to go to Shasta either. I had an, uh, a girl who was helping me do um, edit books, but something led Grant Cameron there, and that's where we must end this half hour. We'll wrap up the program Beyond the Politics of UFOs with Garrett Cameron right after this.
Save your data and listen for free by calling 701-719-9703, courtesy of TalkStream Live. Pair Abnormal News, I'm Brad Bernards. There's been much ado about tiny asteroid 2018 VP1 and how its path was going to bring it super close to Earth on November 2nd, the day before the contentious U.S. election, according to a report in CNET.com. The not-quite-accurate nickname, Election Day Asteroid. Astrophysicist and planetary scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson on Late Night with Seth Meyers. It's a refrigerator-sized asteroid, and given the uncertainty in this orbit, there's a small sliver of that uncertainty that includes colliding with Earth on November 2nd. It appears the asteroid didn't hang around long enough to leave a mark on the night sky. It passed by and went on its merry way. Planetary astronomer Michael Bush dropped an update on Twitter on Monday. There was apparently nothing on the infrasound and atmospheric flash monitors today, Bush wrote. 2018 VP1 has, as expected, flown past Earth. A rare metallic asteroid about three times farther away from the sun than our planet could yield secrets about Earth's molten core, and scientists want to learn all about it. A new study published Monday in the Planetary Science Journal takes a closer look at this mysterious asteroid using data from the Hubble telescope. Here's co-investigator of NASA's Psyche mission, Dr. Tim McCoy. What we've been looking for for years is a metallic asteroid, something that's very dense. Psyche is an asteroid 200 kilometers across, thought to be metal-rich. We have meteorites fall to Earth. Some of them are little tiny pieces. Some of them are the size of cars. But compared to Psyche, they're just tiny little specks of dust. It's hypothesized that a piece of iron of its size could be worth about $10,000 quadrillion. Read more of the news at ParaAbnormalRadio.com. I'm Brad Bernard's ParaAbnormal News. Sensor button here. Just don't tell YouTube. You're traveling into the paranormal with Jeremy Scott. It is a story of contact out in Mount Shasta. Here's Grant Cameron. UFO investigator and researcher of 45 years, and just recently, last couple of years, he's drawn out to Mount Shasta, has no interest in visiting Mount Shasta, has no interest in music, or the connection between music and what we're talking about, and yet here he is, led there, almost called to be there. Uh, Grant, please continue. Yeah. So the reason I brought up the Chris Bledsoe alien message is I got a second one. So what happened was um, my book, uh, Charlie Red Star, finally got published a couple of years back. And there was a producer out of Toronto who decided she wanted to do a movie on it. 
And so she wanted to option it. So I said, whatever. And so she optioned it. And then she said, oh, it's got to do with this Mission Rama. Now, Mission Rama is a group that started in uh, 1974. And it's, they were doing automatic writing, which is contact modality. And they happened to pick up this alien contact. And uh, they said, well, how do we know this is an alien? And they said, well, come out to the desert on Saturday night, 8 o'clock, and we'll fly by. And they go out there and this thing flies by. And they set up this protocol that they developed over the years. There's now, they're all over the world, Mission Rama. I had no idea who they were. And they, they use the same thing where they have what are called antennas. They wait for somebody to get a message. They need two people to get the same message. Then they know they're getting a message from, from a being and they know where to go. And there's called program sightings. And you go to the thing and they, at exact time, the UFO will fly by. And uh, so... Mission Rama was where Enrique and um, Ricardo learned learned their material. And so she wanted to option this and she wanted to, what happened is she couldn't get this thing financed in Canada because it was a Peruvian story. And they went, we don't care. Like, who cares about some Peruvian contact group or whatever? So she decided, well, she was going to take my story, the Canadian story, and it'd be this, she, she turned me into an investigator or a reporter and he's running around Carmen and he's finding you out Charlie Red Star and watching all this stuff. And all of a sudden he discovers Mission Rama and he flies to Peru. And that's where the movie moves to Peru. And she would get it financed. So I said, whatever. She said, you want to read the script? I said, no, I don't want to read your script. I couldn't care less. You know, I, I don't care. I had no idea who these guys were. Couldn't care less. But my friend, who's Latino, worked in a law office in L.A., helped me edit books. And she wants to go. And, and Mission the Ricardo is going up on Mount Shasta, and he's going to meditate for world peace. So she says, oh, you should come to Mount Shasta. We're going to go up and meditate for world peace. And I said, well, you know, Katerina, I really don't have anything against meditation. I don't have anything against world peace, but I don't really want to sit on a mountain or meditate for world peace. So I, she had done so much stuff for me. So I said, okay, Katerina, I'll come to Mount Shasta. We'll go up there on the mountain. I'll meditate for world peace. So off we go. And I take my assistant, Desta. She lives here. And we're going across the desert. We're heading, we're heading it's a three-day trip from here. And we're heading, uh, the second day, we're heading into Reno. We're going to stop in Reno and then make the final trip to Mount Shasta. We're going across the desert, and all of a sudden, the fo- her, her cell phone rings. She said, got the cell phone, and it's Katerina. And Katerina says, I got a message from Grant from Aunt Terrell. Now, Aunt Terrell is the alien. So, and, and I'm going, what? You got a message from Aunt Terrell? And it's like, so I've gotten one of the alien messages. go, okay, get the message. What exactly? Get exactly what the message is. And and she's reading it off like a lawyer. And uh, this comes from uh, Paula Harris, from uh, 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 Ricardo, and he's got a message from Antarell. And Antarell says he knows Grant's coming to the mountain, and there's going to be a program sighting on Saturday night. And and he wants Grant to let people know. So I'm going to put this on Facebook. That's what I'm saying. Make sure you get the message right. I'm going to put this on Facebook. People are going to just go crazy. They're going to be calling me whatever, this message. So we put the thing there, and I go, oh, my good. So I know that they had – these guys can make uh, – the odd time, they can make what are called Zendras appear. Now, these are portals, their version of portals. And they opened one I knew in 2014, 2015, and Paula Harris was one of the people, and she's a good friend of mine. She was in the Zendra. So I knew this story about them opening this portal and Antarell being in the portal and seven people in there, and they're interacting with this being or whatever. So as soon as I got the message, I go, oh, my goodness. I may get to see Antarell. I may get to go in. I'm thinking, oh, man, we're going to open a portal. and I'm going to go through this Zendra, and I'm going to deal with it. So I do the fasting. So they have all these protocols. 
uh, to get in the field. So they do do meditation, they do uh, oming, they do mantras, they do uh, fasting. So I start the fasting thing, and this program setting is going to take place on Saturday night. And uh, I go there, and uh, the um, I didn't realize there are two antennas. One was Ricardo, and one was a woman with a PhD from Columbia University who actually showed me the message she got on the Thursday that basically said the, the encounter would take place at 9.33 at night. So I went there, and um, I'm sitting there, and Paula takes me and actually shows me where the Zendra thing opened. Then I'm getting kind of interested in the story, and I'm taping the whole thing, and she says, Oh, all the other people that were in the Zendra are here. I said, they are? Let's go interview them. And I interviewed like one after another. I said, what do you see? Oh, it was this 10-foot guy. He looked like a bicycle. He had a bicycle suit on. He was all muscular. He had these sparks coming off his chest. He had this gray hair. And everybody's describing the same thing. And I'm going, this is pretty cool. So Saturday night, 9.33. I didn't realize until later it was 9.33. I'm sitting there. And Ricardo's walking around. He's looking at the sky. And everybody's doing this oming. And they're trying to, what you're trying to do, it's like a, like a seance. You're trying to raise the vibration. The beings lower their vibration, you raise your vibration, and you meet in the middle, and the, and all this stuff happens. So at 9.33, there's this flash, and people look up, and it's, it's and I'm going, this thing looks like it's above my head. And I'm going, no, this thing can't, I got, it's got to be my ego. There's no way, it's got to be above the group, it can't be above my head. And then I'm looking, and it flashes again. And I go, no, that is above my head. It's directly, and I'm I'm leaning back, and it's almost like my chair is going to flip, because I'm looking straight up at this thing, and it's flashing. And it flashes about eight times. And at one point, I actually looked down because I can't keep I can't keep looking like that. So I looked down and this giant flash and people are cheering in there. And, and there's about seven or eight flashes. And then um, it stops. And then um, Ricardo uh, sitting or uh, yeah, Ricardo sitting right beside me. And he opens up this little black book he's got, and his wife takes a cell phone that's lit up, and he starts this automatic writing, which was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. And his hand is going a mile a minute, and he's writing, and he's up sideways on the on the book, and it's like, oh, my God. And I'm thinking, like, why don't I have my camera? Because I had the video camera. Why didn't I bring my camera? And uh, then I'm, he, he stops, and then it's a message from Antarel, and one's from Avika, who's the commander, the female commander. And they're talking about me, and Grant didn't see, but he doesn't need to see, and all this kind of stuff which was kind of true and then he says to me he says so what do you think and i'm thinking to myself like i was 75 i saw it pretty close up and i'm thinking to myself that's the best you could do eight flashes it's like and i go well it's kind of kind of unique you know so uh but the thing was later i found out it was 9 33 that these people had picked it off at ninth it's exactly when it happened so across the road was enrique villanueva was having an english group so he had the people and he was speaking english these people were all 150 people it was all everybody speaking spanish i didn't know what i just sort of you know moved when everybody else moved i had no idea what was going on half the time and then i thought well i'm going to go to uh, to the other two uh uh, Enrique, and I'm going to find out what did they see? Did they see the flashes at 9:33? And they said, "No, no, don't talk to him. He's trying to break up our group. He's, you know, what?" And the, there's all this division thing. And I go, "No, no, I'm going to talk to him." And I contact him, and he sends me this video of his. And it was like we, we were like sleeping compared to what was. They had these beings, tall beings, short beings, and all this stuff. They had a portal open. It was like unbelievable stuff. So then I'm thinking, well, I, I wrote the first book. If the uh, the first book in 2017 and then i thought well i got to go and balance this thing out because there's this competition between the groups i'll go to enrique's group uh, again so i went in 2019 to enrique's group to see what would happen in his group and then i'd balance it out and write the book but so much stuff happened at enrique's group i wrote the 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 book about the people going up on the mountain they have these antennas 
that they get this idea. You got to go up on the the mountain at twelve midnight, and there's this tree that's broken over, forming a triangle, and they find the tree and all this bizarre stuff. How they have this encounter with this this force up on top of the mountain, and so I, I, that's why I actually wrote two books. And one is uh, these two guys, but there's probably about half a dozen of these uh, very high level contactee guys who are in the field. They're able to interact and they're dealing with beings from the from the uh, planet Apu and they have a base on Ganymede. So they open up these portals. And so the book, I talk about all the different portal stuff. I talk about the, the government technology, I believe, that they may have. I talk about their impression of portals, people that were in the portals. I go through all the, the different portals of Zendras that were opened up over the years, tried to interview the people that were in them and stuff like that. And uh, this this idea where people will walk through a portal, almost like the the um, Travis Walton thing, where uh, Sixto Paz is the, probably the main guy. He's the guy that started in '74 with his brother. Uh, he opened one where uh, the Zendra opened up. It's maybe it looks like a like a rain like a rainbow, but made out of mist, and it's about a quarter of an inch thick. It opens up. He walks into this uh, Zendra. It closes off. The, the guys are watching. There's all these people watching. Nine hours later, the thing reopens again. He comes out. And he's got a five-day growth of beard, and he's stumbling. He's got this sort of a, a red mark, uh, sort of a burn mark on his face, almost like the Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You see that happens in Close Encounters, and uh, you get this idea that he went right on to Gadamede. So it's, it's the same thing as Ron Pendolfi. Uh, and, and next time John goes to the desert, a number of us will, will go into the next world and come back again. And it's the idea these the, you have these Zendras, these portals. And uh, from what I understand, the government may have two of these portals. And you walk into the portal and you have to be led in by the other side. You walk in, you're on the other side into whatever planet or whatever you are, and you can walk back in again. And uh, so that's what the whole portal thing is about. And there's a lot more uh evidence that indicates there may be portals then there is evidence that indicates there may be anti-gravity there's a lot of these portal stories that when you trace them down they seem to have some sort of truth to them like what what sort of evidence grant what are we talking about here well, I'm talking about like Ron Pendolfi. So Ron, I get him on camera where he's talking about it or this thing where Kit Green, when 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 Penniston says to him, what what, what are you doing? Like, what what's your deal here? Uh, and he said, was well, propulsion. No, no, no. And he said, we're trying to find out how do they pop in and pop out as quickly. So that's a complete independent story that Kit Green is telling. And Kit Green has a, a tape that leaked out. He's telling he's talking to a, a the, the top um, intuitive that's being used by Kit Green. And he's got a, a, a contract, if you read Penniston's, he's got a contract with the Defense Department to um, work with experiencers. There's eight people working on this thing, and they're using, there's a tape that leaked out, and her, the woman, her name is Kay Randall May, she's an intuitive. Kit Green says she's 95 to 100% accurate. There's this tape leaks out, and he's talking to her, and he's using this intuitive. So it shows you that these people are way down the road. That He's saying to her, okay, who are we dealing with here? And I think they're dealing with the target is Gary Nolan. Who's Gary Nolan dealing with? And this woman, she's an intuitive. She says, oh, okay, um, where they're uh, in a portal. There's a portal off the coast of California, and uh, they're interdimensional, fourth-dimensional portal, and Kit Green's going, stop, stop. And he's asking, and it's like, it's like he's not 
not making fun of her or anything. He's just, next question, next question. And he said, I don't know about the interdimensional facilities and stuff like that. And he's talking like this is the real deal. It's a 45-minute tape where he's talking to this woman. So she brings up portals. Then you have the Zendra people with the portals. You have, uh, there's so many indications that this is true, that there is, that they're popping in and popping. And that makes more sense in the consciousness world. They're not flying here over time and space. They're coming in, they're popping in, they're popping out. And they're doing all sorts of weird things like the metal. Do you hear the metal? They're not they're not coming here and then little pieces fall off the flying saucer. They're dropping this stuff I talked to hell. Put off, I believe. I said to hell, come on, hell, this is a port. They're dropping this stuff. They're just dropping this weird metal to make you go, wow, what's going on here? And, and it's always weird metal. It always has weird characteristics. Uh, there's no pieces falling off flying saucers. They're dropping this kind of stuff. And so that's where I came up with my theory of wow, that I think what it is is they're coming in. We're at this very critical time. They want us to know we're not alone, and they're doing all this weird stuff like flying around they don't need lights on flying saucers they fly around and say here we are that's what they did with nimitz it was there for a whole week before they finally went and chased it and then they they, they saw him coming and said oh here they come okay zogar you go under the water make bubbles under the water and the f-18 goes flying oh, there you go one's under the water and they just it's all this game it's like a show where they they're doing all these weird things the crop circles they just want you to know you're not alone but you don't get the answer they don't want you to get the answer because they want you to figure it out for yourself they're just probing people along, dropping the breadcrumbs, and we're following the breadcrumbs. But it'll be consciousness-related. They're not flying across time and space over thousands of miles. They're popping in, they're popping out, and that's the idea that it's consciousness. It's all one thing. It's all here now. There is no external reality. It's all dimensions inside. They're coming from inside and out. And that's why you get like like uh, the DMT experiments where Strassman does these DMT experiments where all these people are seeing aliens in the 1990s. And he's going, have you been abducted? And uh, they go, no, I don't think so. And they're lying on a bed for 10 minutes. They take this DMT and they all interacted with these these beings, these little elf type beings, this, uh, uh, you know, mechanical beings or whatever. They, and they interact with them and they talk to them and stuff like that. And that's happening and they're not going anywhere. They're on a bed. So that's this idea that we are. It, we may be going inside. It's all dimensions. It's all one thing. There is no out there, out there, as as Wheeler said uh, in quantum physics. And it may be all a participatory universe, all interdimensional, all one thing. And it's so much more complex than, than we we understand. And uh, that would be sum up where I'm where I'm at. That the more I look at it, the more I think. It's not going to be ET the way people think it is. It may be ET's interdimensional, but they're coming in from other they're coming in from other dimensions because uh, you can't get here from there. It's, the distances are too far. They're able to come in. They're they're fourth dimensional, fifth dimensional, eleventh dimensional. You hear all this stuff. They're they're beings, but they I I really doubt they're physical beings that are flying across time and space. Okay, uh, I would like to know where these two portals are located. I'm guessing one of them, or both of them, are at Mount Shasta. And then Derek wants to know the terrain of where these portals opened and if they were near any uh, rivers or bodies of water. No, they open all over the place. There's actually one, if you look up, um, what's the, the Uruguay 2009 Sixto Paz, you'll see one. They actually have a video of one. They open all over the place. It's the ability to open them. The two that the government may have, the only one I know is is there's. they talk about the desert. And uh, Dan Smith was one of the guys that uh, at one point I was with Pandolfi's wife on a conference. And um, Dan, the rumor was Dan had 
gotten three offers to go to this portal in the desert. So I don't think it's Mount Shasta because they wanted to come to Mount Shasta. One of Pendolfi's guys wanted to come to Mount Shasta. They heard we were going to go over this, this Zendra thing. And they wanted to come. So it's not at Mount Shasta. It's in the desert. It may be Area 51. I'm really not sure. It's it's in the desert. And I asked um, Dan, I said, Dan, you've got three opportunities to go through the portal. And he said, well, no, that's not really true. And then his Pendolfi's wife says, that is true. And I'm going, holy cow. And then you get Pendolfi's uh, daughter, who was six years old. And if you know the story of Joe Firmage, who was uh, trying to levitate this thing off a table, spent hundred millions of dollars, couldn't levitate this thing, which indicates we don't have any levitation type stuff. And at one point, he's on a conference with Pendolfi's wife. And the daughters, they said to the daughter, she's like seven years old or whatever. They said, have you got a question for Joe Firmage? And then she said, yeah. She comes on and says, I want to know how many portals do you have in your house? Well, a seven-year-old kid, she didn't make this up. She she didn't read this in a book. She's getting it from her parents. She's hearing this kind of stuff. And those are the kind of indications that I got that, yeah, they do have something. And they have to do with these actuators that one was broken at one point. I'm just hearing these rumors but it all goes back to the fact that it's not a dead end. Every time I do the anti-gravity thing, it always ends up in a dead end where it turns out it really wasn't true. There was nothing there. The portal stuff seems to have some, especially when I get uh, a guy from NASA show me these photographs and just prob- probing me along. And I'm thinking later, like, why would he show me these photographs? He was indicating to me and th- that he had been there, that he had been to this room. He must have believed that they had this jumper room thing, that they had this technology. And he was just, he didn't say, it was really just said what do you think and and made me go and chase this story so i think there's there's something what was your other question quickly were there any uh rivers or bodies of water nearby but i guess since we don't necessarily no. know where they're located and if they are in the desert i'm guessing the answer to that question is going to be no no they the, the ones in shasta they opened on the edge of a a forest so what happened was they knew they had six people on the first one six people had gotten the message it was going to be a zendra these two objects fly over and then they they head off into the bush there's this one guy i remember i talking to the guy i i said were you scared when you saw it because the one guy just freaked out the one guy was a military guy freaked out when he was in the zendra and uh they said he cried like a little girl and so i said to the one guy I said were you scared he said no nah, i wasn't really scared and uh i said uh why and he said i've seen him lots of times i said you've seen anterol lots of times how many times he said i don't know four or five times more than that i don't know i don't count and and he was the one they went in so when they they knew there was a zendra that was going to open they had gotten a message so you always get a message that it's going to open that they, they get a, a warning this program sighting thing and so these happened in the forest so they went to the forest to look for the zendra and they found this this dome of light so I had the one guy describe it to me, and he said it was like uh, this mist coming off the ground. It was like a, a mist that was lit up. It's, and if you've been on Mount Shasta, it's like pitch black. You can't see your hand in front of your face. And this mist was coming off the ground, lit up. And he said, oh, my God, they're, they're going into a – he was standing back watching as they went into the forest. He said they're going into someone's campsite. And he could see the light going up the tree, this bluish light. And he had seen a UFO years later. This is a big, huge business guy out of Phoenix who said, I saw that. It was exactly the same color of light of the object that I'd seen years before. And uh, so they appear in different places, but it's basically the person that's able, like Sixto Paz has opened a number of them. Uh, Ricardo's run into a number of them. So they'll have these events where they'll, all these people will appear. And at certain ones, they'll get an encounter that a Zendra will open and uh, certain people are allowed to go in there. I had a 747 airline pilot, United Airlines pilot, who told me about one off Mount Shasta. Uh, He wouldn't tell me where it was, but he said it was close to Mount Shasta where 49 people went through. So that's the thing. I track all these people 
people down. Uh, what was the Zendra like? What did you see in the Zendra? How did it work? And I got so many stories of these people basically telling me, yeah, I was in one of these Zendra things and describing basically the same thing that it's like like a, an interdimensional bubble that is created by the beings and they go in it and, and the, the people in the circle have to keep the oming up. Otherwise, the vibration falls down and the Zendra starts to collapse. So the, the 747 airline pilot, he was the last guy to go in in the seventh group and he said it started to collapse and they started to do this mantra thing to get the the vibration up because the zender was collapsing around them and uh so that's what's in the book i talk all the stories i've got and i do believe there's some truth to the to the portal thing which fits the consciousness thing the the other thing that the nuts and bolts thing doesn't make any sense they it's too far the distances are too far and it wouldn't make any sense that they they loaded thousands of years of food and are coming here and just accidentally found it they know and when things happen it's all one so when we detonated the atomic bomb it was like a bell it rang the bell and it rings through the entire bell and they everybody in the universe knew we detonated the atomic bomb and everything is one so we it not only affects us it affects the rest of the universe and that's why they appeared they're they're deathly afraid of the atomic bomb and they this whole idea that we're destroying the world because 39 percent of the people who are on board the ship are shown the screen you don't have to ask them what the screen is you say the screen yeah i saw the screen what did you see on the screen all environmental devastation uh we're destroying the world uh nuclear devastation that's the kind of message that they're giving to the experiencers well and i uh, totally agree with you the portals i think might also explain uh the missing people how they can cover distances uh, seemingly too far even for a child or the food aspect if you're into a portal uh, you don't need to eat and the missing time isn't such a, a factor hell of a show tonight grant cameron always an honor to talk with you thank you sir and uh, uh your website again beyond presidential ufo.com anything else quickly you'd like to uh have us visit or support you in uh white house ufo youtube channel that's where i put my interviews all right, White House UFO YouTube channel. We do have a link to that on the end of the Paranormal uh, show page for this one. All right, uh, Grant, thank you so much, and good night, everyone, from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. Northwest.